The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, June the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue on the air at the topic. Entirely up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So for music fans, big night tonight. The Iceberg Alley Performance Tent Series opens up tonight down along the shores of Kitty Vitty. So good lineup, great venue, coming back bigger and better than ever. Of course, lost during one of the hurricanes. John Steele and his team went and bought a new tent, bigger than it was before. The surroundings, the setup, the lights, the sound, terrific. So hopefully you'll be interested in catching some shows down at the Iceberg Alley Tent. All right. Quick check-in with Sarah Reed. We mentioned yesterday that Sarah Reed is a St. John's native, played her basketball at Gonzaga High School. She's playing for Team Canada at the U16, what's the proper title here? The U16 Women's America's Championship. They won yesterday the... Uh, 69-37 over Brazil, Dominican Republic up next. Sarah had a good game. She was plus 21, five rebounds, two steals, two assists, two points. So Team Canada off to a good start, as is young Sarah. And put another NHL season in the books. I mean, here we go. It's just so late in the year, right? Now, the matchup was probably not all that intriguing for a lot of hockey fans, certainly here in Canada. But the Vegas Golden Knights go on to win the series in five games with a 9-3 victory last night. A couple of interesting things inside it. So the Smythe winner is Jonathan Marchessault. Interestingly enough, so Vegas, this is only their sixth season in the NHL. They were given a lot of razz back in 2017 during the expansion draft because they were able to start not with a classic expansion-type team, but a real heavyweight team, made their way all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals and now have a cup under their belt. One of the players that used to play for Florida that was left eligible in the expansion draft was J- uh, Jonathan Marchessault, and he wins the Smythe. So a bit of full circle on that front foot. That's it for the hockey this year. And a new rink going to be open here in the city of St. John's. Bravo to all involved. So Capital Subaru is going to be the title sponsor. The Capital Subaru Arena is going to be in the former Action Adventure Park right there on Hebron Way. It's not a full-size rink like you'd be uh, accustomed to. A little bit more geared towards the younger athletes. So good luck to them. So there is a lot of demand for ice time here in the province. This is probably going to fill a niche. It's also going to be wheelchair accessible. So good luck and congrats to those involved and behind the new ice surface coming. And the folks who are going to be running the Avalon Arena Association, who also run and operate Twin Rinks in St. John's. All right. So out beating around yesterday, notice a fair number of out-of-province license plates, probably tourists, right? And their only way to get here is via Marine Atlantic. You know, it used to be Marine Atlantic got a lot of attention, Especially remember back when Jerry Byrne was a member of the Liberal federal government, and he used to talk about it all the time. Look, Marine Atlantic paused their increase from 13 to 17% on the fuel surcharge until December, and we don't know if it's going to come to pass or not. Very much mimicking what's being done at the Confederation Bridge joining PEI to the mainland. No increase in tolls this year, as that province and this province tries to rebound economically. So the one thing that doesn't get enough attention, and I would suggest if I was the member of parliament for the area, sitting on the government side or otherwise, and that case would be uh, Goody Hutchings, member for Long Range Mountains, also the minister responsible for rural economic development, the key to control costs with Marine Atlantic is the cost recovery model. They have to recover 65% of operating costs through the sale of passage. It's just too dear. 
So if it was me and my portfolio, just think about the rural economic development driven by people coming across the Marine Atlantic. We should indeed be at the table talking about that with the feds. You know, much more akin to a 50% recovery model so we can control fares. Look, it's really expensive to travel across, and it is our link, and people say it's the, con the responsibility of Confederation because that is our highway, but it still costs an awful lot to travel that stretch of highway but compared to being traveling on the blacktop on the traditional highway. So I think we should focus a little bit more on that. What do you think? And some of the vehicles, I saw one in particular, it's a dead giveaway when you see an electric vehicle because the front grille doesn't have the openings for air to pass through to keep the engine cool. So this is interesting. Now, it doesn't matter whether or not you want an electric vehicle or interest in electric vehicles or interested in mining the critical components that we have here in uh, droves in this province, but Newfoundland Power looking down the road, and rightfully so, because as the country talks about decarbonizing, we can talk about whether it be carbon tax or clean fuel regulations or whatever you like, but if there's going to be a spike in demand for electric and hybrid vehicles, we're going to have to talk about generation, distribution, and transmission. At this moment in time, very little focus on that, because infrastructure dollars not only have to have planning in place, but also it's going to come at a cost. And as a result, Newfoundland Power is going to the PUB to ask for the monies to run an electric vehicle load management pilot project. At this moment in time, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 electric and hybrid vehicles in the province. They are forecasting a whopping big increase. So whether it be the folks that drive electric NL and Newfoundland Power agrees with their assessment, is that it looks like they say, and I guess this is just evaluating the growth year over year and maybe forecasting for expanded growth year over year, they think there's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 to 200,000 electric vehicles operating in this province by 2040. So... Newfoundland Power is asking the PUB to do this so they can see how they can encourage people to charge the vehicles off peak demand. So overnight, for instance, when most of us are asleep. Makes a lot of sense to me because if they can't figure out a path, and it may indeed come with an infrastructure cost, they've got to get out in front of it because the demand is going to grow. At what rate or pace, I don't know. But growth last year was impressive. And just to talk about you know, the cost of operating. Some people would think electric vehicle or hybrid about emissions and carbon footprint. Fair enough. Others would point to the cost of operating the vehicle. So John Seary, who's the co-founder of Drive Electric NL, he drove his electric pickup truck across the country. The cost? 500 bucks for charging the truck. Just think about it. For all of us who have bigger rigs, you can't get across the island necessarily for 500 bucks. So that's one of the key features. And yes, there might only be somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 3,000 vehicles such, such as those here in the province now. And the pilot project will cost them $1.5 million. That will come from the electrification cost deferral account at Newfoundland Power. But here's how it's, you know, sometimes it lags across the country for us to catch up to trends, whether it be with the hula hoop, the frisbee, or electric vehicles. So there's about less than 1% of the province's 383,000 vehicles are electric or hybrid. Compare that to British Columbia. 20% of all new vehicles are electric. So the growth looks like it's coming, and the preparation, of course, has got to be in place. Will it be easy enough to encourage people to charge off-peak and how it works with, say, the highway charging stations or what have you? And, of course, we've heard from the consumer advocate, Dennis Brown, saying he doesn't think that the utilities, or pardon me, the ratepayers, should pay for the installation of any of these fast charging stations. It should be the responsibility for electric vehicle owners. Interesting position, and I think he gets some support on that front. So we can talk about that, but I mean, it's the operating cost that looks really attractive to me. So we're going to consider it down the line, but I think that's a worthwhile exercise at Newfoundland Power. But just think about it on the national stage. 
there is absolutely an opportunity to generate more power, but is the grid capable of transmitting or distributing the increased requirement for electricity, regardless of the source? I would suggest no. And also on that front, when you talk electricity, it's hard to ignore the elephant in the room, or in some people's minds, the boogeyman in the room. It's Hydro Quebec. They've got a new top man in position. We do know there's been some preliminary discussions between this province and Premier of Quebec and or our, our utility Hydro and Hydro Quebec because 2041 is around the corner. And it's not only, you know, getting to know what those negotiations or discussions look like, but there was actually a committee struck in this province to look at the real-life implications, the upsides, the facts, the realities associated with the expiration of that contract in 2041. So I think maybe just, you know, I don't think that shows our hand. It doesn't jeopardize these discussions or negotiations if the public is aware of what exactly is going to happen in 2041. Some people think it's our golden ticket. Some people think, well, maybe not the big economic upside that we think it might be. Because Hydro-Quebec and their equity stake doesn't go away. It would just be a change between possibly now and 41 or 41 thereafter with just how much we get per kilowatt hour. So if you want to take it on we can do it. But also for those of you who are still interested in the internal combustion engine, of which 99% of the people in the province are still driving such vehicles, the wait time and the cost to get into a new vehicle is unbelievable. So we know during the pandemic, there was all kinds of supply chain issues. Number one, semiconductors, not only for new vehicles, but even for appliances and what have you. Some of that is coming back to earth. But the price of a new vehicle is up by some 30% since 2019. Average cost of a Canadian passenger vehicle is just over $45,000. So the cost of everything has pretty much gone up, whether it be with labor or rubber or copper or aluminum, whatever the case may be. But it's the wait time that's staggering. The news story I read this morning is this woman had her sights set on a Toyota RAV4 Prime, went to the dealership to talk about it, and was told that the wait time would be eight years. <laughs> what? Eight years. And I know lots of people have been in the market for buying a new vehicle and wait times somewhere between six months, 12 months, 18 months. So between the price tag and the wait time, it's absolutely a problem for many. On top of that, and here's what people are being asked to do or is demanded of them, is if you want to buy a new vehicle and to order one, then you have to put down whatever type of deposit. The amount varies. But if you have to wait 18 months, the dealers and the manufacturers, they can make money on your deposit, and you can't because it's out of hand. You put it down as a deposit on that new vehicle, and so much can change inside the world of 18 months. So that deposit one, I know I'm going to have to face it if I go to replace mine, and I'm not too big on doing that period. All right, to stick with the travel underground. We spoke with Danny Breen, the mayor of the city of St. John's, about potentially amending the rules of regulation surrounding a ride share like Uber or Lyft or whoever to come to the city. The cab companies, one in particular, Chris Hollett over at uh, Jiffy Cabs, he's pretty dismayed. He says blindsided. You know, they were told that they'd be part of the consultations, be part of the process. Uber said they weren't really interested in coming here because at one point the city said the Uber drivers would have to register just like a taxi company and the same implications regarding rules, regulations, insurance, and what have you. And Uber said, well, that doesn't match our business model, so eh, not interested. Now the city is wanting to openly review the rules to entice Uber to come and Chris Hollard at Jiffy says that is not on because you told us we'd be part of it and we weren't we were blindsided the question I would have and we're trying to see if Mr. Hollard has time for the program this morning 
He's trying his best, that company and the taxi industry is trying their best to service the needs of the taxi driving public, taxi riding public. But they're having a hard time getting drivers, mostly because of the insurance implications, which is absolutely wild. They didn't have any luck when they were looking to try to amend those rules so that my driver's abstract as a taxi driver was what uh, evaluated my insurance premium versus automatically being in the, in the industry and falling into facility insurance or faculty insurance without any consideration of your own driving record. So that hasn't helped. My question for Mr. Hollard would be, and if he's listening now, he can prepare for it, is if the taxi industry, with their inability to get enough drivers out there to satisfy the needs, would Uber devastate their business or would it just further enhance the opportunity for people like me to get, whether it be an Uber or a Jiffy or whatever other cab company, or ride to and fro wherever I'm going. So I'm looking forward to speak with Mr. Hollett because that is a big one. And yes, people make the point, if you're a taxi driver now and Uber comes to town, then you can simply become an Uber driver. But that sort of missed the point that the cab companies are making. All right, some good news on the economic front. So we know we were told last Friday that a deal had been struck for a new purchaser and operator at the St. Lawrence Flores Bar Mine, and it's happened. It's good news, and so it's a South African lawyer. He's a uh, director with a Singapore-based equity firm called Ahmed Funds. They manage some $1.4 billion in assets. Apparently, he has a very good track record with his investments in this world. The price tag to purchase the mine was $25 million. It's been a 15-month roller coaster waiting for the insolvency procedures process to take place, but now it's done. A couple of things. S feels like good news, right? So... At the time when the mine was shuttered, there were some 280 people working there. The new operators have not set a target for the number of jobs. They didn't want to commit to a number. Okay, they are going to invest in the facility itself because it requires an investment. They say it is a absolutely uh, terrific uh, spread of floor spire there. It's the only floor spire mine in North America, as a matter of fact. And it's used for all kinds of th stuff, lithium batteries, what have you. But here's where we have questions about the money. And where you stand depends on where you sit. So the province was one of the secured creditors. And Canada Floor Spire owed us some $17 million. And we're not getting it. That's gone. That's one thing. And so it then it's also the case that the province is going to put in about $3.8 million towards a water treatment management plan at the site to assist in restarting the mine. So for some people, that will say that we just invested $4 million with no return cash on the barrel headwise. The minister responsible, Andrew Parsons, I'm sure his thought is we would either have no mine and say goodbye to the $17 million, or for the cost of $3.8 million, the mine is back in action, the jobs will be created, and the economic spin-offs. So again, some people will say, well, this is a wise investment. Others will say, not so much. We just paid to have a business come to town. $25 million for a very attractive and lucrative uh, product like Floorspar. But for the folks on the Bjorn Peninsula, absolutely good news. Will it indeed give people an opportunity to come home as a tradesperson who maybe once worked in the floor spire mine? We'll see. And also on that front, talking about population growth, some new numbers out there. So APEC celebrating their uh, anniversary with a conference called Building Atlantic Canada. The population of Newfoundland and Labrador grew some 2% last year. St. John's added 5,000 people, as a matter of fact. That's all good because population growth drives investment. A lot of that population growth will be through immigration and through uh, international students. But it does, again, come with a pressure point. 
More people, when we're already experiencing a housing crisis, vacancy rate in this neck of the woods is around 3%. It does indeed add more people needing to avail of health care, which we already had as concern, whether it be with a family doctor or wait times or pressures on emergency rooms. So the good news is indeed tempered until we can get ahead of it and ensure that people have a place to stay, affordably so, and for expanding health care offerings so that we can accommodate more and more people. But on that front, you know, population growth also has to come with the province who tried last year to deal with improving fertility services in the province going back to the well. This is a big one because what they did is they offered people some uh, money to travel as far as uh, Calgary to get uh, in, in vitro fertilization services. About 121 people have received that subsidy of $5,000 per cycle for up to three cycles, meaning three trips. So. 45 had availability a second time, 11 available a third time. It's cost over $800,000 for those $5,000 pots of money to families to travel for in vitro. That would be the key. Expansion of services. Apparently, we have the expertise and the professionals here to have our own fertilization clinic, uh, IVF clinic. So they're going back out there. The last RFP only had one responder. The province thinks that there was probably too short a time for other interested organizations or companies to get involved. But that would be a big one if we're talking about keeping and retaining young families here and the opportunity for them to get assistance in fertilizing the fetus if we're going to grow inside the walls of our own province. All right, that's a good one. All right, uh, just a little bit of good news before we go to the break because there's all kinds of other news out there, isn't there? Whoever is behind the Facebook group called Meals to Give started back in February of 2021. One of the organizers, a lady named Brenda Anderson, they were providing around 20 meals per month to folks in the area, hot meals. Now that's grown. So about 180 people receive meals each month, including 76 families. So bravo to folks out there making a positive difference in their community because there's lots of logistics to preparing and distributing the meals. So anyone involved or anyone who's contributed to Meals to Give, good on you. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. The topic entirely up to you as long as you pick up the phone, get in the queue during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we were talking about Chris Hollett, the Jiffy Cabs owner uh, in the preamble, and he joins us right now on line number three to kick off the program. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. How you doing, Freddy? Doing okay. How about you? Good. So take us back to your initial conversations with the city and or the mayor specifically about some of the rumbles or rumors that people were, you know, talking about what, what if we can get a ride-sharing company to come like Uber. So bring us back to where these conversations first began. Well, once there was, you know, a rumble of the possibility, the government, the first government announced initially that they were looking at changing some insurance res- regulations to allow ride-shares to operate in the province and then we had meetings with the city about that about how that would look like for our taxi bylaws given that we're you know taxis or rideshares are the same thing they pick people up they drop them off obviously we want to be involved if it affects our business um so we had a meeting um uh since my conversation with cbc news yesterday morning i've reached out to the city i've spoken to them and they said there's actually no pen to paper they're just kind of you know gathering in information at this point so yeah i was upset because the the way the news article was written initially uh over the weekend was that they were coming and the city had the, the laws done now i find out that they're actually not done they're just still doing their homework 
Okay, so, I mean, the public will be asking for this because if anyone's traveled out of province to any major city in particular, you know, Uber is extremely popular. When you get to the airport, there's certainly be a big lineup of cabs, but a lot of people go right to the phone and order up an Uber. So, you know, I know, and you say that you're doing your very best to serve the public, but when the costs are so extraordinary to be a cab driver, insurance in particular, ongoing operating costs or upkeep of your vehicle, which has exploded as well, that you're hard, it's been hard to get drivers. And so you're doing your best to keep up. So do you think that Uber would actually decimate your industry and your company, or do you think it would just simply add to servicing the public and really no meaningful change to your business? What do you think is going to happen if it happens? Well, in- initially, there might be some impact. Um, the whole, re- we've been listening to what people have been saying, and we've been looking at ways to improve our service, to drive up our efficiency, you know, as far as missed calls and not being able to get the jobs booked. Uh, getting cars to go the fastest route possible so they're able to free up sooner to do more work. So we're looking at implementing. We've already changed our phone systems last week. Um, Hopefully next week or the following week we'll have our app up and running. So people should definitely see an uptick in, you know, the, the time it takes for people to get picked up. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that feels like just a compliment to a system that is struggling. I mean, if your costs over the last decade have gone up some 350%, how much of that is directly related to the reality for getting insurance? And that doesn't include your driver's abstract. It's simply because you drive in that industry, you're part of this uh, faculty insurance uh, group, and that's that. So give us a breakdown of how you think the costs inside 350% over a decade have increased. Well, you know, you go from, you know, even in Halifax, they're paying, I think, $4,500 a year per taxi. Here in Newfoundland, it's anywhere from from 9000 up to 12000 a year. And, you know, to sustain a car, you need a car to move six, seven days a week, and you need your, your spots filled. So in the past, we had extra cars. Uh, to cover the you know the busy times, which is Friday and Saturday nights, obviously, and you know sometimes during the evenings throughout the week, we had extra cars that were able to be there. You know when when drivers are, we're having to turn drivers away on a Friday and Saturday night because we don't have enough vehicles. We don't have enough vehicles because the insurance rates are too high. The insurance rates are too high because there's you know too many easy payouts. People hitting quote unquote the auto lotto, and they're getting paid out. Uh, very little investigation. So when we're in the pool of facility insurance in the taxi industry and the people just keep getting paid out, no questions asked, there needs to be insurance reform or there needs to be something done special to allow, you know, because I've talked to other taxi operators yesterday and they said they if, if insurance went back to 4000 or $5,000 a year, they could put another 10 cars on and, and, and cover the costs and cover the, the gaps in service. No sweat. I, I'm, you know, I'm still recovering from COVID. I mean, I lost 70 cars over COVID overnight. And, and to put those cars back on the road at a, at a, you know, at a flip of a switch, it's not realistic. You know, people moved on. They retrained. <clears throat> the industry wasn't fully allowed to operate, uh, you know, the way it was. You know, people were only allowed to sit in the back seats. So we were having to send more cars for the same amount of work as we had to do before. So what would be your plea to the mayor so that you're not on the outside looking in or getting blindsided in the future? What's your overall message for not only involvement, for how to proceed on this file? Well, if, if, if ride shares are allowed to come in here, why are, if they're a taxi service, 
they should have to hold commercial insurance just like we do. They should have to be inspected and regulated by the city. There can't be, we can't just have a thousand Ubers just all of a sudden show up. And I mean, where would the taxi industry be if they just opened it up and it was a free for all? That, that would be detrimental. So it's working with the city and, and to let them know our concerns because essentially, you know, they're not going to put us out of business, but, you know, in an extreme case, maybe they would. You know, maybe they'll put individual car owners out of business and they might say they move on, they can't afford the cost because they're not making the work back, you know. Like if you call me today, you call right now, our cabs are going flat out. You can get a cab within, you know, timely manner. There's some gaps there around supper time, which we realize we're trying to work on that, trying to extend our shifts a little bit to cover the 3 to 6 p.m. rush that there seems to be every day. Um, you know, and putting this new system in is just trying to improve our service for the public. Like we understand nothing is perfect, but we're not blind to that fact. We're working with, you know, app developers to ensure that the transition is smooth and that people are getting a timely service and stuff like that. So if I put that in my cars, if the other car uh, taxi owners are putting it, which I know they are, they're, they're coming out, you know, within the next couple of weeks as well, hopefully that'll you know, bump up our service. Will there ever be a need for ride share at that point? I don't know. We're going to have to let it all shake out. I appreciate the time this morning. Chris, anything else before we say goodbye? No, I appreciate the time. And, you know, we're, we're always trying to be like Toronto and like, you know, we we're still 120,000, 125,000 here in St. John's. We're not Toronto. Like, you know, a, a lot of the short haul runs that Uber is going to do, they're going to, they're going to claw back at least 45 to 50 percent of all those short haul runs so you know yeah okay you got a fly-by-wire kind of guy coming in and wanting to make some money on rideshare they're not going to make a decent enough living you know like if they want a job come to me i'm always looking for new drivers other stands are always looking for new drivers so if they're interested in transporting the public transporting the public they can reach out there's lots of spaces available yeah i suppose for some of those potential new drivers some of these uber drivers i would imagine i haven't spoken to everyone who's considering it obviously but would be yep. you know i'm home on the weekend maybe i can pick up a few bucks on saturday night from six to midnight you know in my own car do it on my own schedule not being told by chris holland or anyone else when i have to be at the stand how long i have to operate during the run of the day so i totally get your invitation for new drivers but of course if i want to do it on an extremely part-time basis based on my own wants to be on the road or not though i guess that comes with a difference i wish you good luck though obviously chris and i'm glad you made time for us this morning if they're if they're looking at doing that on a part-time basis they should be insured as a commercial vehicle because at the end of the day that is a work vehicle and you you know you need to be registered like that you know i, I don't know what checks that uber does on their vehicles background checks driver's abstract checks we do all that i don't know what they do you can come to me if you have a problem with the driver I don't know what your your, uh, your action for recourse is if you're you're dealing with an issue in a newer car. Appreciate the time. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. All right, will I get another one before the break here, Dave? No? Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller there wants to talk about the carbon tax. And then we're going to speak with Jessica McCormick from the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Labor. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Cecil Bonnell. You're on the air. Yes, uh, Patty. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand there's a increase in the carbon tax uh, we're going to be paying 42 cents a liter on our gas is that right no so are you talking about the immediate increase coming on the 1st of july 
Yes. Currently we pay, here's how I understand it, Cease, and I'm having a bit of difficulty trying to break this down because there's two things here. There's the carbon tax increase because now we're moving to the federal scheme uh, and the implication of the clean fuel regulations and what that's going to mean for a liter of gasoline. So the carbon tax right now we pay is around 11 cents on a liter of gas. It's going to jump at least to 14 because of this, because when the federal scheme comes to town, doesn't mean that it's all going to be lumped on, because the money that we're paying will also be reflected in the federal scheme. So my understanding is simply on the carbon tax implication, going from 11 cents to 14 cents. Okay. And the other problem we have, Cecil, is that we can't even get a straight answer from the federal government about exactly what's going to happen with the clean fuel regulations, whether it be on the 1st of July or all the way to 2030. There's so many different numbers bouncing around from the Parliamentary Budget Office, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Minister Responsible, Environment Environment and Climate Change Canada. So I don't even know if they know what they're talking about because they can't give us a number. Hey, it seems like to me there's 195 or 200 countries in the world and, and, and trying to fight climate change on their own with the carbon taxes and all the other billions of dollars they're spending on all their sources of energy. See, the problem is the uh, federal liberals, NDP, they're all anti-oil development. For example, this uh, was Ryan a, while, a few days ago talking about Beta Nord. It was a fake, uh, fake comments. He wasn't sincere. And also, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, that's been delayed because it's not del- not stopped, but there's changes coming all the time, and it's delaying the project. There's layoff, big layoffs coming there. So the, the, the Trudeau government, the NDP, locally too, they're all against oil development. And this is the problem. We're having a problem with all the taxes that we're paying on carbon tax and everything else. I get that because they've talked about phasing out uh, fossil fuels in the country. That's absolutely true. At the most recent international meeting, you know, the COP meetings, the COP27, Canada refused to sign on to an agreement internationally talking about phasing off uh, fossil fuels. So at one hand, look, Minister Gibo has certainly said the quiet part out loud. It's going to be more difficult to get an oil, uh, an oil field in production and approved by his department in the future even though they did give the green light to Beta Nord, and I don't know how that would be anyone's issue beyond Equinor themselves about getting Beta Nord operating. But at the same time, like the Trans Mountain Pipeline is going to cost Canadians in excess and well in excess of $30 billion. And last year, not because I say so, but because the industry has said so, the uh, Canadian oil and gas producers had record revenue, record production, and record profit. So if someone wants to kill the industry, they're not doing a very good job. Well, it seems like to me that uh, they're anti-oil anyway. And, and the guy that you just mentioned, uh, the minister responsible, he, he was a greenpeacer. So, yep. I mean, you can't expect him to sp- support any oil development. And Newfoundlanders are losing thousands of jobs because of the, the, the delays and so on. And this carbon tax, we don't need any more taxes in Newfoundland. People are, are going to be starved to death. Because it's crazy what's going on. The cost of living, like there's all kind of, you know, it's not for me to say what anybody's individual concern will be, but I think we share a common concern with cost of living. And it's not just about the price of fuel, which is really expensive, but it's everything. And notably food. Like again, I grocery shopped yesterday and I'm constantly mind boggled about how little I get for so much money I'm spending. $100, you got three or four items. 
yeah, my spending power is way down. It really obviously is. Uh, the food one, I can't wrap my mind around how we get some controls in that world because no matter what party you support, where your political ideology is, we all need to eat. That's right. we got to eat. Sorry. you got to eat. See, so I'm glad you made time for the show. Would you like to say anything else? Okay, that's it, Patty. Okay, nice to have you on. Thank you, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Have a good day. You too. Yeah, look, I'm really trying to figure out the f- full implications of the 1st of July because there's two different things happening when it comes to the price of fuel. The implication of the clean fuel regulations and the fact that we will indeed be on the federal carbon tax. The carbon tax implication, I'm pretty sure, moves us from 11 to 14 immediately. Then you add in whatever additional cost, because the refineries aren't going to suffer it, even though their margins have gone from $0.10 a litre to about $0.50 a litre since 2019, it's going to be transferred to us. But you would think that between Minister Freeland and Minister Gibo or somebody else, they could tell me exactly what that implication is, but nobody can. You know, the Parliamentary Budget Office says uh, $0.17 in additional cost because of those regs by 2030. You know, and if the regulations are in place in full, it will see a 1% reduction in our provincial GDP simply because of that. So it would be nice to get a number. All right, let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Labor. That's Jessica McCormick. Jessica, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to, I was listening to Chris Hollett's call earlier and I heard Mayor Breen on last week. So I wanted to call in and talk a little bit about Uber from the Federation of Labor's perspective. You know, it's it's really interesting. Uber might be an attractive option for people to make a few extra bucks, but it's really indicative of what's happening for so many Canadians, whether a full-time reliance on the gig economy or doing it on the side, because it's now something that we really need to wrap our minds around. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I've been expecting this conversation to be coming here for the past number of years. And um, and so it's finally here. And I think we do need to, you know, as the, the labor movement, but also um, business community and government get together and talk about how we can, you know, if, if companies like Uber are going to be operating here and there are other, you know, app-based companies that are already operating here, what kind of uh, uh, work environment does it offer to the people that are, are drivers? And do we have the right uh, laws and regulations in place to protect those people? So that's where my mind is at with it, Patty. You know, um, Skip the Dishes is already, you know, an example and DoorDash and others um, that are that are operating here in the province right now. And and certainly for the people driving those cars, you know, they don't have access to the same benefits that other workers would, had, would have. And like you said, um, a lot of people are unfortunately relying more and more on uh, on these kinds of app-based jobs to to make an income it's not just you know something that you do on the side to make a couple extra bucks so we need to wrap our minds around um you know how we can protect those workers as well as as protect people in the downtown as you know you were talking about last week all that you know the workers rights piece of it has to be part of the conversation yeah and some of those uh, skip the dishes and those types of services i know it's really convenient for folks but there's also a real life business implication it takes away some profit from small businesses like restaurants who are really struggling mightily so where are the gaps for protections for those types of drivers whether it be skip the dishes or other gigs yeah so there's a little bit of a difference between say uber and lyft the the um ride hailing apps and and the apps like skip the dishes and doordash um, Skip the Dishes and DoorDash, uh, for example, don't offer uh, vehicle insurance, um, but there are uh, some ways to get vehicle insurance uh, provided to drivers through Uber and Lyft. Um, so there's a bit of a variation there, but all workers, whether they're uh, uh, food delivery or ride hailing, are classified as independent contractors. And this is what a lot of people are calling misclassification. So if you're an independent contractor, you're not subject to the same protections under labor standards that other workers are protected by. So, like, you know, 
know, minimum wage laws, access to workers' compensation, uh, sick leave, um, recourse for um, um, dismissal without cause, all that kind of stuff. Um, you don't have those same protections if you're an independent contractor. So companies like Uber and, and others say that this, uh, you know, is because they want to provide flexibility um, to the people who are working for them um, so they can't classify them as employees. Um, but, of course, on the flip side, it means that those people are subject to, um, you know, uh, fewer workplace protections. They experience, you know, violence and harassment um, in their job, and there's, you know, no opportunity, I guess, to, to avail of some of the programs and standards that other workers can avail of when they find themselves in a similar situation. Who would be responsible for these things? That's where, you know, mm-hmm. I, maybe that's a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So yeah. when we try to add these protections and services and supports, who is ultimately responsible for that? Yeah, it's, it's a, it lies with the provincial government, Patty. You know, the provincial government is responsible for labor standards um, and, and labor relations laws. So, um, you know, Minister Davis, and I think this is a really important thing that, that he and the provincial government need to do is open up a conversation for the gig-based drivers, uh, gig-based workers that are currently here in the province, because there's lots of them, to ask them, you know, what their experiences are like on the job um, and to take a look at the labor standards to see if there's a way that we can better protect people um, by trying to end this misclassification, or at least putting the onus on these companies to, to justify how that person is not cannot be considered an employee. So it, it, it lies with the provincial government. Um, in other provinces, uh, unions are trying to figure out ways. This is the other part of it too, Patty. Gig-based workers, uh, because they're misclassified, can't unionize. So there are different you know ways that unions in other parts of the country are trying to find a way to represent some of these workers so that they can support them to deal with disputes, you know, if they're not paid correctly, if they're unfairly dismissed. Um, but it's really difficult if we don't have the right labor laws in place to, to you know, give people the right to uh, access labor standards or, or, or join a union. So um, we do need the provincial government to step up and at least start the conversation by talking to the people who are working in this sector. Uh, fair enough. I'd like to get a quick update on a couple of other campaigns you're working on, for instance, uh, paid sick days. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, inside the world of organized labor, many people say from the outside looking in, everybody takes every single sick day throughout the calendar year, whether they're sick or not. But there's some 50,000-ish, if I remember the number correctly, low-wage workers in this province without access to paid sick days. So whether that be implications for public health, because people will absolutely go to work sick if they have no yeah. choice. So any advancement on that front, any conversations that have been furthered with the government? No, unfortunately, no advancement on that from Patty, and it's something that we keep uh, pressing on, and we brought it up in, in budget consultations, you know, uh, just back in the spring with government, that there are, as you said, far too many people who are going to work sick and, and are not, you know, it's not set up to uh, for people to abuse the, the system. It's set up for people to be able to avail of it when they need to, and there are so many uh, low-wage workers in the province and precarious employed workers in the province who just need those the access to those basic standards um, and they don't have them right now so at the Federation of Labor we're keeping uh, on this one and pushing um, along with the Workers Action Network like, like I think people think that the Federation of Labor is just working in the interest of unionized workers but from my perspective we're here to work in the interest of everybody whether they're union or not and when we can make these kinds of improvements uh, together it benefits everybody not just people who have a union card. Uh, last fall there was work being done by the Fed or the Federation of Labor regarding Bill 3 and some recommendation of maybe 10 amendments regarding the shortcomings of the pay equity legislation. Any movement on that point? 
No, um, uh, we met with the uh, Minister for Women and Gender Equality um, back a little over a month ago um, and outlined our recommendations to her. We haven't um, had any movement on it yet. Um, I know that there were engagement sessions um, that took place uh, back in May, but uh, have been no updates on that front. Um, We had a a rally with members of the Public Service Alliance of Canada just a little over a week ago downtown. So we're going to keep pushing on that one too because the gender wage gap is too important an issue uh, to to not put uh, continue to hold uh, minister's feet to the fire. Um, we've got a lot on our plate, Patty, and I know um, people were talking about the carbon tax on the show. So sustainable jobs is also on our mind, um, and uh, and ensuring that we have you know a workforce prepared uh, for a clean energy transition. So uh, lots to talk about, and hopefully I can call back in sometime uh, soon and, and discuss some of those other topics as well. For sure, appreciate the time this morning. Okay, thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Jessica McCormick, president of the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Labour. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about a municipal issue that Glenn has, and Sam wants to talk about the pending announcement regarding the recreational food fishery for 2023. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's see here. Let's go to line number three. Sam, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today, thanks. How about you? No, no not bad at all, Patty. I mean, what I'm uh, wanting to inquire about, uh, early in June last year, I think it was, they announced the recreation fishery. And so far, I hasn't heard one sound about it so far the year. Was the people uh, trying to plan holidays that are away? Because a lot of people love to come home and go out and catch a couple of fish and stuff like that, right? And I don't know if you happen to hear anything on it. Short answer is no. I might have missed. <laughs> no. So, look, this one is an annual issue with DFO. And I don't know how many people plan holidays, but, but that's not even necessarily the point, is it? Because last year, it was just like the year before, 39 days. Last year, the season began on Saturday, the 2nd of July. I don't think we found out about the rules, whether it be the need for licenses or tags or when it starts or boat limit, until the 22nd of June. So I'm going to guess that it's going to be very similar this year as it was last year. But for some reason, DFO waits until very late in the day to just let us know what's happening. And I don't even know why. Surely at this moment in time, they know exactly what it's going to be like. So why not just tell us? Yeah, that's uh, the same way I feel about it, right? Because I thought there last year, I thought they announced it early in June, right? I wasn't 100% sure. But it is really time for to put it out and... So people can plan around and things like that, right? There's lots of things people like to be able to do, you know, when they come around. <laughs> but uh, I love just for at least for the turnaround now and put it out early enough so that uh, people know what's on the go. And I think they need to be mo- a lot more clear when they make their announcement because they were saying the uh, five five fish per day for both. And I called about it last year because sometimes you might have to make three or four trips bringing people back and forth out for the catch that fish. And I was told at that time that, no, uh, you can have four people in your boat and you can have five fish each, No, however many people's in the boat. But it seems like there's a bit of confusion around that, too, that they never make it clear. No, And I think that's something that they really needs to... Uh, clear up when he makes the announcement. I agree, 100%, because they don't, here's what I think is going on. They don't want to tell you that you will not be fined if you had five people in the voting you came in with 25 caught, because they want to keep the extraction as low as possible. But, I've got an email 
right from DFO that someone else sent to me that says exactly that. But they always go out and they say five per person, 15 per boat. But then in right. an email, they say you will not be fined if there's four of you with 20 or five of you with 25. So uh, it's an excellent question, Sam, and a good point. Yeah. Well, Penny, I appreciate that. No, and thanks for the time, and uh, hopefully we'll hear something uh, soon. Absolutely right. Thanks for your time, Sam. All the best. Okay, Penny. Thanks. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number two. Glenn, you're on the air. Hey, buddy. How are you this morning? Not bad, I suppose. You? Oh, <laughs> could be better, I suppose. It could be better. What's happening? Anyway, uh, I called in last... I called in in October of 2021, but about a water sewer issue, uh, sewer, sewer problem on that. Uh, on Pierce Avenue at the Brothers House. Okay. And this, and the city said that it was our, that it was his responsibility to go from the house out to the sidewalk and put on new ladder rows in. So myself, him, and the other brother, we dug that we dug it up. We put on new stuff in, all up the code, backfilled it all. It all worked perfect. And now he's doing it again. Phone the city, and the city uh, supervisor said that no, that is a rental, but it's not a rental. I don't know a three other. I recently found out in yesterday, after, after making a few phone calls to some people I know and stuff, that three former workers of the plant told this individual that my brother wasn't living there, and he is. Now, these people don't live in the city. They don't talk to my brother. They don't have nothing to do with him. Like, why are they taking these three individuals' words and assuming that is true? Well, I mean, it shouldn't even be about taking anyone's word for it. If you have a rental, it has to be registered with the city as exactly that. Right, and it's not registered. It's not registered as a rental. When the brother bought the house, the person who owned it lived there, I don't know if he had a rented or she had a rented, whatever, that's irrelevant. they got nothing to do with the situation. They're trying to say that it's a rental and it's not a rental. And this individual, and I'm not allowed to say the person's name, so I won't, but he knows who he is, and if he's listening, he should know. Come down and do your job. Anything else, Pat, we were told, anything else past the sidewalk, the sidewalk and out is the city's problem. And that's in where the problem lies. Now, I called him the other day. I was talking to the person, in the individual on the phone, and he said that they were down the last time when they, when they had to blew the, blew the line out first, that they almost got the, the jet pump. Now, the jet pump is only about an inch in diameter, cut out in the alcohol in the pipe outside the sidewalk where they got it back. Now, obviously, there's a problem there, but you don't want to come down and do it because it's on a one-way street, and that's what I'm thinking. Like, everything is... The first, you wouldn't go in under the house at all because they said it was a crawl space, which is about four, four and a half feet down there. And then no one else had a problem coming in. Alfonso's or anyone else never had a problem coming in, blowing it out. So when we put the new ladder rows in, we put the clean out on the outside, make it easier for the city. They still don't want to come in and do nothing about it. Now, it's flooded out again. We just had a fix two weeks ago, uh, almost yeah, two and a half, three, almost three weeks ago. And the lady down to the uh, city said that if it happens again, call us back, we'll come in and we'll come down and do it. It happened again. They just, now the city said we're not coming in to do it. We got it that the, he, the brother got to go dig it all up out in the street and everything and put all, everything in brand new. That, that, that's not our problem. They're all clay pipes. That's what's out there. That's the problem. And this, this like, I, like, I'm bewildered. I just left. The cap. I was down yesterday and checked on it to see, and everything's coming up through the through the clean out on the land. So I just left it open. That's like you can't even use the facilities there. I'm a little surprised you're even allowed to do it. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like yeah. this is beyond me. This like, and 
They're saying that it's a rental unit. They don't do a rental units. They don't do this. I know it's for a fact, buddy, and I got pictures of them doing it. The city workers ain't doing this. A house on the corner, on the southeast corner of Blackmarsh Road and Alberry Lane, putting in no water, no sewer system for the person there, and it's a rental unit. I got it on camera to them doing it. I took pictures of it. <laughs> like, the city don't want to come in and do the work there. Why? I don't know. The brother said, I didn't even pay for him to come in and do it, he said. But I can't pay it all, like one lump sum. Like he's only he's only a worker or two. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, there's actually another story out in Kilbride, of course, when they did some of the upgrades, including sewer work, and all of a sudden people woke up, checked the mailbox, bill for $10,000. So there's more to it than this. Do you have uh, access to an email, Glenn? Uh, no, I don't myself personally. I don't have an email because uh, pers- I got a flip phone, and that's what I use because them stupid fandangle phones with the flat screens in it, they're hackable. But anyway, if you, uh, if you, if I had a uh, uh, a fax number for or uh, an email or something for you or something, or I can get your producer to give it to me, I can get a, an email to you. Okay, mine's an easy one. It's just open line at vocm dot com. Okay, open line at vocm dot com. That's okay. it. Okay, open line. Just send me some details because I will follow up. I have a couple of questions about even being allowed to do it or why the city won't do it. Vocm dot com. That's it. Be open, open line, BOCM. At BOCM.com, yeah. At, at, okay, at. Yep. At BOCM.com, okay. All right, go ahead, buddy. Anyway. Send it along. Thanks for this, Glenn. Yeah, so, uh, the, uh, like, like, I don't understand, man. Like, why do you both come in? Like, you, you know, it's like, it's weird. Well, I'll see what I can find out. That's why I'm asking for an email so I can have a few more details, including whatever names you want to supply. And when you send me that, I will do. I'll do the follow up. I'd appreciate that, Patty. And it's like, like this is retarded. Like, like, like paying no, no. taxes on times. Yeah. Everything. All right. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. All the best. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah. Like, number one. I didn't think you were allowed to mess with municipal infrastructure like that. Whether it be to do your own repairs or to investigate how and why something backed up. I know, like, for instance, when we had a uh, the flood of the basement, the most frustrating time of life, you know, we had the plumbing company come in to see what happened and do the repairs as long, uh, along with Service Master and whatnot, and they put the old camera down through to see what blockages might have contributed to the problem and, you know, keep that on file so that we can connect with the city and say we need something, whether it be tree branches or roots or whatever, getting into the pipes and or just build up over the course of the decades that that home has been a... Uh, on that property, but that's that's a bit of a strange one. All right, how are we doing on the telephone, David? When we come back, Ron's in the queue. He's got a problem trying to cash a check from the United States. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number three. Say good morning to the co-founder at Drive Electric Canal. That's John Siri. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's a bad this morning. How about you? Oh, we're lovely. We're just looking at some first responder training for electric vehicles this morning at the college. Cool. When we were in uh, the UK last summer, there was electric vehicles part of first responders, ambulances in particular. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Just to clarify a, yeah. a couple of things that I said off the top of the show based on things I've read and I think things that I remember speaking with you about is when you drove your electric pickup truck across the country, the total cost to charge the vehicle was $500? Yeah, the fast charging cost 
at the public fast chargers was 500. We had uh, a lot of the hotels that we stayed at offered charging at no cost to guests, so we used that as well. So those two things together counted for all of our charging costs. What do you think the uh, the time it took to travel across the country because of the need to charge versus my internal combustion engine? Because people ask those questions all the time. So give us a time frame reference. Sure, sure. So in my case, I was traveling with my mother. She's 86. We weren't going to try and bust a gut every day. We had people to see. Uh, we were making appearances here and there. So we were averaging somewhere between five and 700 kilometers a day. If you wanted to say, okay, well, if I wanted to drive across the country in electric versus a gas, you know, what's the time difference? There's been a number of people who have done that sort of cannonball run across the country in electric vehicles, and their time is comparable to a gas one. They, uh, you know, they can use their overnight stop to, to recharge, so you've you know, basically done a fill-up there at no additional time. Um, and you know, fast charging infrastructure, it does take a little bit of time, but you're generally doing that while you're eating, so you can... You can actually, you know, it's the difference with me negligible if you really, really wanted to do it. Now, if you have limited charging infrastructure, you might find yourself waiting for a charge, but that really depends where you're going and, and how many electric vehicles are in use in that area and what the charging infrastructure is. But as it sits here right now, it's a negligible amount of time if you've got the uh, the charging infrastructure where you're going. What, what type of investment do I need to make in my own home if I buy an electric vehicle? The own home is pretty simple. You, uh, you get a level two charger installed. So just imagine a 40 amp, 240 volt circuit. It's installed by an electrician. The unit itself, you know, we sell them at the resource center starting at around $750 and up. Um, and whatever your electrician cost would be, which you know, ranges depending on the location of your panel and where you want to put the charger, you know, somewhere between 400 and $1,000, depending on what they want to put in. So we know that we saw the growth numbers last year for electric and hybrid vehicles, and we do lag when we talk about uh, the numbers across the country. If it's less than 1% here, but 20% in BC, you know, I think it sort of speaks to how trends have worked in this country over the decades, is that eventually that type of interest will come to this province. Regardless of if people want to talk about their carbon footprint and or cost of operations, a lot of people are becoming interested in and considering electrics or hybrids. How did the yourselves in Newfoundland Power come up with the forecasted numbers? I suppose is fairly fundamentally look at growth extrapolate for how other provinces have grown and try to apply a number giving yourself a variance so they say and i think newland power agrees with you is that there's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 maybe 200 thousand electric vehicles or hybrids by 2040 so how did you come up with that walk us through it yeah i i would say even faster than that um the reality is Everybody in this province is really burdened with the high cost of running a gas vehicle. It's not just the fuel. It's, it's the maintenance that goes with it. And if you go and buy a new car right now and, you know, the first thing they tell you is, okay, when you're coming back in for your first oil change, and we we'll want to see you for this and this and this and this. And you suddenly realize you just bought a subscription to a fairly expensive maintenance schedule. If you look at the maintenance schedule of the Lightning, it's every 16000 it's inspect. Inspect, inspect, inspect. If you went and bought a Tesla, the maintenance schedule is zero. So to put it another way, driving a gas car is costing you eight times as much for the distance as an electric car, just in fuel and the recognized maintenance. So that kind of a savings, I mean, look at the effort that people put in to save a few cents per liter on gasoline when they know it's going up the next day, how long they'll line up at a gas station. Obviously, everybody's going to look at this and say, well, 
when can I get one of these vehicles? So that adoption curve is going to happen very quickly as soon as they have the ability to buy. Uh, you don't have to look very far to see the you know, effect of online streaming videos compared to the video rental store or how quickly film cameras disappeared and entire companies evaporated when we realized we could do a, a digital camera in our phone. And that's basically what we're going to see. So I would say it would be sooner than 2040. Um, we have an advantage in this province that the cars that people want to buy are now beginning to be manufactured. So the uptake for us will be quicker than parts of the country that started uh, several years before us. And improvements to the vehicle, the battery included, will inevitably happen. And it's not even just consumers that are going to be, some will say, well, John Series pushing electric vehicles for some unknown reason. The car manufacturers are very quickly turning their attention to these because that's where demand is. So it's just a pretty organic uh, transition as far as I can tell. So inside this plan by Newfoundland Power to approach the Public Utilities Board to try to fund this electric vehicle load management pilot project, the concept there is to try to encourage people to charge an off-peak hour. So, you know, in, uh, notably when you're asleep. So you just plug it in when you go to bed. And so no, very few people will shower, get the dishwasher, the washing machine going, all the big draws on electricity. How should that message look? Because yeah. people are right. fickle and people are stuck to their routines and their habits. And they'll charge their vehicle when they think they want to charge their vehicle. So if you had your druthers and craft that message, what would it look like? Because for me, the argument would be, well, if you don't think this is the right play, then here's how much it's going to cost to expand transmission and infrastructure, which is going to come with a massive price tag, possibly. Right, right. So the nice thing about uh, electric vehicles uh, compared to other loads, I mean, nobody's asking you to wait to cook your supper until after 8 o'clock. You, you can cook it as soon as you, you know, are ready to, and nobody's expecting you to keep the heat off until after midnight. But the charging of an electric vehicle, um, you know, a typical day's driving is replaced in two to four hours of charging overnight. So if that charging happens the minute you get home or after 11 or at 2 a.m., it doesn't really make much difference. So the effort there is just simply to uh, get get owners into a mode where the normal time to charge is off, off peak so that you're not resulting in, in massive infrastructure upgrades just to put in, uh, to accommodate a demand that doesn't really need to be there at that time. Um, it's... Uh, it is a bit of a, you know, a, a simple thing is just modifying people's behavior and also using some of the features that come in every car as to what time is the preferred time to charge. Well, in certain jurisdictions, they actually will uh, cut your brake and your kilowatt hour charge if you do indeed use electricity in off-peak demand hours. California comes to mind. Uh, yeah. Anything else you want to offer this morning? Oh, actually, last question for me. Yeah. Have any ballpark idea about the average wait time to get an electric or hybrid vehicle? Because I read an unbelievable story this morning about wait times that get some of the most notable in-demand vehicles. One lady was trying to get a Toyota RAV4 Prime. This was out in Western Canada somewhere. To ask the dealer about how long it would take. The dealer said, eight years. <laughs> now, I know that's not the case across the board, but any idea what the wait times are like? People are going to have to realize that there's a lot of car manufacturers out there who really are not seeing a future in electric vehicles. And as hard as that is to believe, um, you know, you're not, you're not going to find the companies that built their fortunes on perfecting gas engines jumping on the electric cars. Um, if you wanted to order... Um, you know, certain certain models are uh, more readily available than you might see. Some of the Hyundai's and so on tend to appear, um, but some of the other models are a little bit more in demand. Um, you know, the Lightning now starts to be you know available and in stock. 
here and there, although what we aren't seeing <clears throat> as much as we'd like to is the lower trends. The, the, the ones that are currently here are the higher trends, which sort of puts the price up, and that's simply because they know they can sell them. And, and over the next year, we're going to see that start to change. If you wanted to order a Tesla, uh, the delivery time now is hovering around one to two months, which is actually quite reasonable. Um, but if you're if you're stuck on one of the legacy car manufacturers whose heart just isn't really into selling electric vehicles, then you can expect to walk into somewhere and have someone tell you something uh, ghastly like eight years. And if and if a salesperson looked at me and said you're going to wait eight years for that, then that's the time to look at them and say, okay, you're you're obviously not interested in having me as a customer anymore because. They're just telling you, I don't want you to save the money that you should be able to save. I mean, it's like walking into, you know, Blockbuster and saying, hey, do you have an online streaming service? And they're saying, no, 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 you have to keep watching this and make sure you rewind it before you bring it back. Nobody expects that. (laughs) Well put. John, good to have you on the show. Great to have you. Uh, always welcome to drop into the Resource Center. You'll see us around this summer. We've got a number of uh, appearances with the truck to show it to people, especially people working in trades. So if there's anybody that has a group of uh, people that work in the trades and would like to see our truck, please get in touch with our Resource Center, and we'll come on out and serve some coffee and explain all about it. And you'll also see us around the different municipalities and uh and uh, different events throughout the summer. So looking forward to seeing people and telling them about this exciting new technology. Thanks a lot, John. Stay in touch. Thank you. Take care. It's John Siri, the co-founder of Drive Electric. And now let's go to line number one. Ron, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Yeah. um, I just want to talk about uh, cashing an American check yesterday at the bank. Okay. My son came back from Florida. He had a lottery ticket. Scratch it, won 20 bucks. Send it off to Florida State Lottery. And then it comes back, I've checked, bang, geez, perfect, 20 bucks American, right? So uh, when I went to the bank, I said, well, what I'll do is just, I don't, I haven't been in the States now since before COVID kind of thing, right? And not planning on going this year or not. And I said, well, I'll get a few American dollars anyway, right? I don't have a U.S. account at the bank, which a lot of people do have now, right? So uh, it didn't. It said to the cashier, I said, do I get Amer- can I get American money for that? She sure. Like, you know, and I figured, okay, whatever the exchange rate is, you might charge me a couple of bucks or whatever, whatever. So anyway, so uh, she said, I had to run it through your account first. And so I said, okay, whatever, you know. So anyway, so she puts it in the account, gives me the receipt. No, she said, I was wanted American money, right? She said, I'll run through your account, give you American money after we do that, right? So... Uh, Anyway, she ran it through, and the check is $20, right, American. And we all know what the exchange rates are now. They're, you know. 75 cents, I think. For a few dollars, right? <laughs> Do you want to take a guess at how much money I got? <laughs> or will I just tell you? Just tell me. $20.91 Canadian. Why, because there was a fee to cash a out-of-country check or something? Yeah, so they charge $5 to cash it. I know you charge American or whatever. And... I said, well, so do I get my American money? She said, well, you got to buy the American money now, right, if you want it. I said, okay, this, whatever. And I said, well, if I want to buy the American money, how much is it going to cost me? She said, well, $20 American is going to cost you $27.60. So, you know, so she cashed a check. I got $0.91 Canadian extra back. But if I wanted to buy the money, it would cost me seven sixty more in Canadian money, right? And she said the fee is five dollars. I said okay. If I take twenty seven sixty minus twenty dollars and ninety one cents, it don't come out to five dollars. Like kind of thing, right? Yep. And I said there's another like 
dollar or something or two something or whatever the difference is, right? I said, where did that money go? It's almost like almost like a riddle I'm playing or some kind of joke or something, right? And uh, she says, no, no. She said, that's other fees, she said, in the bank. Right? I said, okay. I know you don't make the rules here, but... I said, like, I got a few accounts here, like, and I've been with the bank once. Oh, oh, sorry, I'm not going to say the bank. <laughs> See, uh, uh, I've been uh, uh, with this bank for, like, a long, long time, right? But just that little thing there could, could, could sway me to go to another bank. If I could find a bank that would cash a check and give me the American money, that could be a deciding factor. In sw- I'm, I'm not going to switch banks. but No. But, you know, it just... Weird, like kind of thing I found. I know you got to charge a fee for the service, but and I pay maximum amount possible I can pay at the bank is like thirty something dollars a month, so I don't have to pay service fees and stuff, right? Yeah, now I would imagine across the banking landscape they're all charging a fee because <laughs> you know what it's like. We only have so many options inside the big five oh, uh, yeah. Canadian banks. I appreciate the time, Ron. Thanks for this. I didn't uh, know that was a thing. If I have a moment, I know you got to go to break. Quick, uh, yeah. The thing with Glenn with the water. If you got to go to break, that's fine. Very quickly. Okay. Uh, we had the same situation here. He's got two problems. One is a rental. One is a water, a sore backup. Same problem on our street last year. Buddy with the rental had a sore backup. He had to pay for everything. It's easy to figure out if it's a rental or not with the city. And I don't know, it seems like these guys might have an axe to grind with each other somewhere from the, from the tone of his conversation there, right? With people saying this and saying that or whatever, right? But after Buddy with the rental fixed the problem, my next door neighbor, who's not a rental, had a problem a, a week or two later. And when they came, they found out that the sore line was plugged off. So even the rental guy, the problem wasn't with his storage, it was the problem was out in the street. But he had to pay, like, and it costs a lot of money. You've got to pay to replace the sidewalk and everything. That's right, yep. And deposits and everything costs, like, about 20 grand or something, right? 10 or 15 grand or something like that. Yeah. But anyway, I know you got to go to break, so I'll let you go with that. But uh, if Glenn wanted to call me, Dave got the number. If he's listening, he can give me a call. He wants to call Dave back or something. Appreciate this. Thanks, Ron. Okay, Patty. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, there's a caller who wants to talk about their most recent property assessment. We got ours. Then we've been talking about the case of Jack Whalen. We'll fill in those blanks a little uh, later when we come back to speak with Jamie about the Limitations Act. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Jamie. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. I'm just actually reaching out. I was watching your show last night, actually, online, um, about this gentleman, Jack Whalen, who's driving around the city with the cell, the replica of the cell he spent two years in as a child. Um, And, you know, I've been reading up on the statute of limitations, and, and I'm just really... I'm floored that people are not behind him, are not up in arms. Like, I feel like the entire province or even the entire country should just be in an uproar about this, and I don't understand why people are not. And it makes me wonder if maybe it's a situation that they don't actually understand what this man is fighting for, and that that is to change the limitation for children who have been abused. Like, he's not trying to, um, you know, fight for some guy who goes downtown and gets an bar fight and, and wants a payout like this is a he's trying to change the laws so that children who are abused by people that are in a position of power over them 
Well, abuse them. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, let's just give the folks some context so that we know what we're talking about. So in, last year at some point, the province actually settled with residents of whether it be Whitburn or some uh, facility here in St. John's, about $12.5 million, about 110 people. And they were people that, that were uh, abused sexually. There's exemptions given for physical or psychological abuse. And this is really quite something. So here's how it works. For the victims of uh, the statute of limitations on sexual abuse, there is none. But if you are uh, the victim of childhood physical abuse, you would have had to wait till your 21st birthday to come forward with the claim or your 29th birthday if the abuse had been discovered late in life. So they're trying to say that physical or psychological abuse is not uh, not okay, but is not worthy of compensation. It's a pretty strange way to split that here. And consequently, the province has offered themselves an exemption here. They wrote the act, and now they're hiding behind it. Even though they take responsibility for what happened to Jack Whalen, they understand the province's role of what happened to Jack Whalen and others at Whitburn or wherever else, but they're hiding behind an act that they wrote. This is really patently unfair. Exactly. Exactly my point. And I think it's really important for people to, to stand up and fight back. And I mean, it needs there needs to be a united front. Because I'm sure Jack... I mean, we've all heard, I'm sure we all know people that have been in the same situation. Jack is not the only person that was tortured in these facilities as children. And, you know, if we don't all, if we don't all scream as loud as we can that this law has to change, then nothing is going to be done. And I really, I just don't understand why everybody is not as horrified as I am in this situation. Well, I am. I know. I heard that in your voice, which is why I wanted to call, because I really just feel so strongly that, like, everybody, there needs to be a united voice, and people need to stand up. And I really wonder, you know, if this, if the justice minister, if the people in power who could change these rules, if they spent a night or a day in that cell, you know, I have to wonder. How, just imagine sitting there, 13, 14, as an adult, even as an adult, a 47-year-old woman, to sit in a, in a cell like that, you have to sit for, I think he said at one point it was over 80 days consecutively, and you're not allowed to put your feet up, and you're not allowed to lay down, or they'll take your blankets, or, you know, like that kind of torture between the ages of 13 and 17, like you, you don't know how to process that, you don't know how to come back from that, so to say, okay, now you have three years to get your life together and do something about it is just i mean that's just absurd and i I don't understand he was in the whitburn detention facility for four years he spent 730 days in solitary confinement Uh, it's truly a remarkable story in addition to that he had grade six education when he went in he came out with grade six education so we betrayed the guy you know and solitary confinement is widely understood to be cruel unusual and a form of torture in 2019 the country said we're not going to have solitary confinement in the prisons the prison systems and the correctional officers and the wardens not too keen on it because solitary is a tool in their tool belt but they just found ways around it. So they have things like called a dry ceiling. If you've been uh, suspected of bringing contraband into a prison, they use other phrases to do the exact same thing as special handling units or solitary confinement. But if we acknowledge that today, and we know that it was in play for a, a young child, 14 years of age, 730 days in solitary confinement, came out way worse for wear. The lifelong trauma that comes from that is obvious. So the story is big, and I don't think we should let it go. Absolutely not, because as you rightfully point out, he's not the only one. No, no. Unfortunately, um, it's a province that has a a history of abusing children. 
a system that has a history of abusing children. And if we don't stand up now and change it, it's gonna. We'll be in the same position forty years from now with some other person who is experiencing the same thing. Because I can guarantee you, it's happening now. It's absolutely happening now, regardless of any laws that were changed in 2019 or any recognition of the fact that it's torture. It's still happening, and it, it has to. You know, if society doesn't stand up and and do something about it, then it will continue to happen. 100%, because it wasn't that long ago we found out stories of some 29 children that had died in provincial care, and many people didn't know, including the child youth advocate, and so we've tried to repair that chain of command and how that information gets shared and disseminated and publicly available. This is a big story, and I'm glad you took the time to call us about it today, Jamie. Well, thank you for your time, and I do appreciate you bringing attention to this story. Um, you know, it's it's... It's horrible. It's nothing short short of horrific. Absolute madness. Appreciate the time. Stay in touch. Thank you, Patty. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Oh, man. Uh, Take another one here, David. Yes. Let's go to line number two. Perry, you're on the air. Good day, sir. Good day to you. Uh, I got a lot of health problems. I try and deal with the social assistance. I need to LVR kit. And the only places to get it is in Gander. I live in Kings Point. And the social assistance is turning me down because this is a public, uh, private owner. Uh, private owner, uh, I'm only getting 425 an hour for me and my wife live off because of social assistance. Mobiles can't work. It's impossible. I don't know why the social assistance uh, thinks they're uh, above the law. I don't know who makes the rules, but it wouldn't for Kathleen, uh, Brian Ward's secretary. Right now, they're excuse language, but they're crucifying me, and I'm dying. I got one lung. I need this kit to help to strengthen up that little bit of lung I got left. And they're treating me worse than they would treat anybody. We, 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 as Newfoundland and Canada, we've tried to help everybody. And I'm one person there, and just putting me down in the dirt. And I don't know where to turn. So, uh, just so I understand, what exactly do you need? Uh, LVR kit. I don't know what it is. It's just something beyond me. And the only place that they got it is in Gander. So is it a kit that you have to go to a hospital to use or something that you can bring home or something that is attached to you? Or what? how does it work? Someone to be attached to me, and they got to show me how to use it. Okay. Bring home. And so they're saying that this is a out-of-pocket kit. You have to pay out-of-pocket. It's on me. Pardon? It's on me to do. Okay. Do you know how much it costs? The kit, uh, the kit well, the, see, the other power source system is paying for it. Uh, Traveling, uh, whatever, anyway. But they won't give me the gas to go and get it. Even though I got a 21-year-old car, I got to go and pick it up. And so, those assistance is abusing the poor. Have you applied directly through the medical transportation program itself and not social assistance? Yes, we've done it through medical transportation. Yes, we've done everything. Like I said, it wouldn't for Kathy and Hill. I don't know what we would do. And like she said, they've canceled my appointments to see specialists and everything. Who are they? I'd like for them to change health. They take my health, I'll take theirs. Any day. But see, I got to die and I got to punish along with it. 
I don't know what else to do. How far do you have to travel? Uh, a little over two hours. And so just one time? One trip in out. That's it? You yes. don't have to go back repeatedly for it to be recalibrated or uh, investigated? No, I, I don't know, sir. I can't say that. I don't know. Well, what happened? What would uh, what would you say to us trying to get your ride? Well, like I said, I mean, all you got to do is at least supply the gas to me. But why are they so mean and nasty when we're helping the rest of the world? I don't know. I can't speak for them. But what I can say, if so, someone in the area who normally goes back and forth uh, and would like to give you a ride, that much I could try to help with because I have, of course, no authority to do anything with a government program. But we can see if we can get someone to give you a spin. You know, yeah, but I still just like for the public to hear what they're doing. They're supposed to be men and women. They're supposed to have a heart and conscience. I understand your point, and I wish it wasn't the way it is. But if we can help another way, then... You know, whether it be someone wants to help you cover the cost or give you a ride, that's as much as we can do here. And I do appreciate your want to have the general public be aware of how the department and or the government is treating you. But let's see if we can help another way, Perry. Okay. Well, they're still they're low and disgusting for to say that to me. I'm only 59 years old. I understand. I'm young and I'm not old enough. They told me, wait till I turn 65, you're paid for me like Bill. 65. And that come out of their mouths. See, I, 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 I'm fighting depression, and I've been in 2E. I think they need to go there for a little bit of treatment. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. Let's see if I can get you some help. Bye. Take care, Perry. Bye-bye. So, again, if you heard Perry's plea and there's something you can do, whether it be with transportation and or we can set the man up with a half a tank of gas or something, if you want to do something like that, of course, it's completely up to you. We're all stretched thin, but... There's a lot of kindness out there. Let's take a break. When we go back, property assessments. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, caller. Oh, uh, uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Do you usual a good show again this morning? Appreciate it. Patty, I, 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 I've got uh, uh, an issue this morning here uh, regarding property assessment. I got in my, I got mine in the mail there uh, last week, and my assessment over last year has gone up $21,600. So I, I, I made a call to the, to the, the, the property assessment division, I left a message, no one's there to answer my phone. So I got a call about an hour or so ago, and I went over with it, and uh, he said that the reason being, he said that property assessments has gone up all over. So we went over the the value of my house, and he said, uh, have you had any additions? to your property, and I said, none whatsoever. So we talked on, and uh, he said, well, he said, you could... Uh, appeal. <clears throat> appeal for it, yeah. So I said, can you, can, you, uh, can you put a letter to me in the mail stating that my 
what, what you just said, that my property was uh, is, is gone up because it's gone up all over. And he said, uh, no, he said, I can't. And I was taken right back. I said, you can't? What did you want the letter to say? I'm sorry? Pardon? What did you want him to put in writing? The, the reason why my property assessment has gone up. I wanted to write it. So I said, ask him, and I'm going to have his name. So he gave me his first name, and I took the pen, and I write it down, and, and I said, your surname. He said, I, I can't give it. I said, you can't give it? I, and then I thought it was a scam call. <laughs> yeah. And he said, uh, no, he said, I can't give it. And I said, any reason? Well, he said, I'm working from home. He said, I don't want people coming to my home. Now, does that make sense to you, Patty? Uh, it's all a little bit odd. So where are you calling from? Where's your home? Marystown. So do you get an assessment every two years? Every year. You get one every year. Because not every part of the province does. I do in the city of St. John's. I get an annual assessment. Mine was up, but nowhere near that amount. I had some, you know, curiously, someone sent me an email saying, uh, and they're in Buren, and their assessment went up over $15,000. Yeah. It's I've got, I didn't have any additions to my house over the years, last number of years. And I don't see, I don't see, I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's really gone overboard, you know. I mean, uh, $21,600 $21, in, in a matter of a year. I'd appeal, number one. And secondly, it's sort of a weird process anyway. I mean, people will do improvements or renovations, maybe not necessarily get uh, approval from the city or their town. So they're kind of eyeballing your property and doing some averages about resale in their neighborhood and comparable properties, size of home, age of home, that type of stuff. So it's nowhere near as scientific as I would like it to be because it's money out of my pocket. So... For starters, I'd appeal. Now, where that goes, I don't know. But someone should be able to tell you exactly why. Provide you a bit more detailed information, whether or not it be about, you know, the average sale price of homes like yours close by where you live or however doing this evaluation because the assessment is always, and of course, it's only one piece of the puzzle, right? The other piece being the municipality setting the eventual mill rate to see whether or not your taxes are going to go up. And likely with that type of increase, that's a lot of mill rate control for you not to see some sort of increase in your property tax. You know, you see, this is just one, one of the first questions I asked him. I said, how come, how come it's gone up that much? And, and he, he questioned me, and he said, Did, have you had any any uh, uh, any additions done to your property or anything, any new improvements or anything? And I said, no, not over the years. So that's why I asked him then if, if he could give me a letter stating that it was the reason why it was gone up, because it was gone, the assessments are gone up all over. Yeah. And I, when he said all over, I guess... I, I, I took it all over the province. Well, I'm not so sure about that, but certainly places where you've seen a little economic shot in the arm will see increases, and it happens all the time here in town. Uh, but I don't know what they base this on uh, necessarily, but the Municipal Assessment Agency, who is responsible for the vast majority of these uh, pieces of work, I'll see if they want to come on and talk us through the process. Dave, let's do that. It's a municipal assessment uh, uh, period right now. Let's see if someone from the agency wants to come on and walk us through the process, whether it be in the urban settings or places like Marystown or Buren or Burgio or wherever. I'm going to get a guest on. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's beyond me. I mean, <laughs> so 
so uh, I guess the appeal process is is, uh, is a route to go. At this point, I don't know if you have a whole lot left uh, in your quiver, but I will absolutely get someone from the Municipal Assessment Agency on to talk about the process because some of it feels like guesswork. I could be wrong, and they can set me straight, and we'll also talk about the appeals process and you know, try to get a better understanding of how, your, or how and why your assessment looks the way it does. We're going to reach out to them right away and invite them out for tomorrow. Thank you very much, Patty. Appreciate your time. Good luck. Have a good day. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, before we get to the break, let's go to five. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning. Morning. Thank you for taking my call. My, uh, my, my pleasure. Pardon me. Okay. So there's a, there's a new trend here. It pertains to uh, online social media. There's a couple of, uh, couple of sites here in Newfoundland. One's for, one's for men only, one's for women. And uh, basically... It's meant to get, I guess, feedback. It's meant to get references. So, like, references for what? Uh, I guess about their character, the background, what do they like to date? Oh, this uh, is about dating. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm nervous. I can't lie. I've well, never done this before. Don't worry about it. Just take your time. You're doing fine. So, um, I guess I'm I'm dealing with it now because uh, last week it was brought to my attention someone took my information without my consent put it on this site the one that's only for women now there's a corresponding site that's only for men i don't agree with either one of them i don't think either one of them is fair but um basically if your character is being slandered which is my case um i can't do anything about it not with the site because uh, men are not allowed on this female site and the only reason why I know about it is because a friend of mine just so happened to be on the site and shared the information with me. Now, again, there's one for men, right, that only men can join for the same purpose. And if you want to deliver facts and if you want to be uh, critical, that's fine. But when it's outright lies to the point of slander and defamation, trying to ruin people's lives, that's a, that's a different story. Um, I think the site should be removed, or if not removed, at least combined, you know? So, like, open to everyone, because um, if, if I haven't done this, but if I were to try to contact the administrators of the group, they take your messages then, and they put them on the form. It's like an extra added layer, I guess. I'm not too sure, but um, it's, it's a legal matter for me now, because I know who I am as a person, and again, if you want to be critical of me, that's fine. I still don't agree with it, what they're doing. But uh, the way the world works now with canceling people and stuff, uh, what's being said about me could have catastrophic results in my life as a, as a man, as a dad, involved with nonprofits and, and stuff like that. So, sorry, I'll let you say something. I'm kind of going on here. Like don't said. worry about it. You're making your point. You know, interestingly, Facebook actually started on the campus of Harvard with the way to rate the looks of people. 
and now we've gone all the way down this road and here we are. The whole thing sounds a bit creepy to me, to be honest. Um, and we also know that people at their keyboard don't necessarily do the most honest things. A lot of bad faith actors out there who are willing to say something nasty about someone just because they can and just because they think they can get away with it. So this really does sound like a pretty bizarre site. And, you know, if we're talking about people protecting themselves, you know, like the provincial government has a piece of legislation called Claire's Law, so that if someone you're dating and you want to find out whether or not they've been a, a bad person, had been involved in intimate partner violence, you can find out through the RNC. That makes sense to me. But the, this site really sounds like a Yelp for dating. So, like, if I give a restaurant a bad review just because I'm a crooked person or bitter by nature, then that carries a lot of weight with people who read reviews. Now we're reading reviews about human beings. We don't know whether or not it's true. We don't even know whether or not the person who's part of the group is even a real person. Exactly. And uh, I guess I guess it's picking up speed. Um, I've been to the RNC about this. Because, uh, again, I just know who I am as a person, and uh, I just I find it disturbing. More and more people are going to the RNC about this. I've, I've spoken. I've, I've spoken with a lawyer. Um, I can't believe, like, I actually had to do this, but it might be worth my while to actually follow through with the legal uh, course, because if I happen to lose my job over these false allegations, then, then that'll be the worst case scenario. They've actually started now. Uh, again, I'm not, no names or nothing's being given, but there's a side group started now by the administrators of the particular group I'm, I'm being targeted on. And the reason why they have a side group is in case the main group gets shut down, here's where we're going to go. And I can't emphasize this enough, but have it open at least. I don't like it. I don't like what they're doing, but even if they had it open where someone like myself could, you know, reply to these false allegations, but uh, I, I don't know. I've reported it to Facebook, and uh, I guess I just want people to know because after talking to the police, more and more people are going in the last month about this. Um, there are options, right? And um, police, uh, politicians, whether you speak to a lawyer, you can report. You can report it on Facebook. There's also an email the police will give you to go almost directly to someone on Facebook. And sorry, again, I'm starting to ramble here and stuff like that, but it's just, uh, it's, I feel helpless uh, seeing this stuff that I'm not supposed to see. It's a private group that allows private messages. And like, come on, at least, at least open it up to people. But I'm guessing if they open it up to everyone, you're probably not going to get all these, you know, uh, slander and defamation comments and stuff like that. So, Well, I'm sorry it's happening to you. And again, it just sounds like, you know, we go from reviewing restaurants and hotels and the like to now we're reviewing people without their knowledge, no access to see what's, be no access to see what's being said. Sounds like the unbelievable, slippery, dangerous slope to me. I had no idea this was even a thing, so I'm glad you told me about it. And I'm sorry it's happening to you. But keep me in the loop with next steps. Absolutely, I will do. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Anytime. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Where do you want me to go there, Dave? You got an update on two? Yesterday, we had a call yesterday from Rod talking about there was a dog that had been accused or allegedly had bitten somebody. And six weeks later, there hasn't been a completion of any type of investigation as to what is the future of that dog. The dog's been held in the old dilapidated, abandoned uh, 
facility, the old pound. So I guess we're going to get an update, hopefully here, a positive update from Rod on two. Rod, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Yeah, I want to give an update. So uh, I, I got some information through the grapevine this morning that after our call, within an hour or so, <clears throat> a decision was made to uh, have the dog vet checked. Now, this took six weeks. To have it assessed for aggression, again, took six weeks. Uh, you know, and, and, and from what I understand from the trainer that uh, assessed the animal, uh, from what I'm hearing, is that it showed no signs of aggression. Uh, as well, then the RNC has have already made arrangements to ship the dog to St. John's to a better suited facility for this type of uh, uh, this type of case or trial or whatever they're going to do with it. I mean, did it really have to take a phone call to uh, show the RNC that they were number one contravening the Animal Health Act to begin with? You know, I, I'm shocked at this that. Uh, that this happened and that this animal was left there vanquished basically for the last six weeks. And uh, from what I understand, <clears throat> the only people who were allowed to even have anything to do with the dog was the RNC. Uh, the, uh, the animal handlers with the city weren't allowed to take it for a walk at all. And the entire time it was there, after speaking to one of the animal uh, control people, the dog never showed any signs of aggression whatsoever. And they were devastated. They just wanted to, you know, make sure the right thing was done. And so there's where it stands. Uh, you know, the dog is now on its way to the city of St. John's to a better facility. And and I hope the right thing is going to be done here after all the information that's been gathered, you know. Yeah. What's the condition of the dog? <clears throat> dog is, uh, well, <clears throat> from what I understand, the dog is in the, you know, considering that it's been barred in there for six weeks, it's, it's still showing good signs. But I mean, you know, it, that in and of itself would lead to an animal being, or even a human being, uh, traumatized. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it does show some sorts of uh, aggression or whatever. But according to the person that assessed it, uh, no, not at all. So, uh, you know, I mean, let's, you know, let's get this moving. Let's stop, stop frigging around here and get something done with this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just a strange story. I, you know, for starters, I don't necessarily understand why it takes so long for this type of investigation to take place because it should be fairly fundamental. You know, you can have one of the dog whispers uh, assess a dog for how hostile or aggressive it may be. You can have some interviews take place with the dog owner, the person who was allegedly bitten, or anyone else who saw it, or others in the neighborhood. I mean, it sounds like you could wrap a lot of this up inside the envelope of one week. Absolutely, and this this has normally been the case. Uh, however, uh, I'm not quite sure why it went down this road. However, I hope that they've learned the lesson here, and moving forward, you know, we'll make these things happen pretty quick. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, right off the bat, these you know these people are supposed to know the animal the animal control act you're supposed to know it we have one you know was that we put in place a few years back because of stuff like this and, and yet here they are contravening it and it's only because uh uh some people were aware of it and, and started to speak about it that i heard about it and i thought geez like this this is ridiculous you know i mean right now in this day and age we're still doing this like make a decision like i told you yesterday if the decision is to put the animal uh down then that will be the decision and we'll take the expert's advice but to have it left for six weeks in those deplorable conditions is just not good enough and someone needs to answer for this i think right 
Yeah, I mean, and I don't really know exactly where to go or what to do. Yeah. Yeah, very likely the RNC is not going to give us any information about no, their role and timelines and all the rest of it. But uh, it's a strange story, and hopefully the outcome will be concluded ASAP. I appreciate the time. We've got to get to the news route. Listen, once again, Patty, thank you for your advocacy. Pleasure. Take care. Take care, buddy. All right, bye-bye. All right. Uh, yeah, we will take a break for the newscast. But Karen is there to talk about uh, her grandchild has autism, some of the issues with getting appropriate medical treatment. Steve wants to talk about the lack of summer school. Is there no summer school? I mean, there always was. I remember one time, uh, I remember one time I was encouraged, and if not told, I had to go to summer school one time to bump up my math mark to an A. <laughs> I didn't fail, but that was the way it was growing up in the daily household. And then we're going to talk to MNL. It might be the, less, the least sexy issue in the world, but wastewater, wastewater treatment, federal regulations, non-compliance, it's underground, but it's going to cost the different municipalities hundreds of millions of dollars to be fully compliant with the federal government. We'll talk about that, and then whatever you want to talk about, talk away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Steve, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Oh, hanging in there. At least the sun's out. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is the first time that I've called you, although I've listened to Open Mind for, for many, many years. Uh, just prior to we went to the uh, the, the news, uh, you mentioned that uh, you had gone to summer school. I'm, I'm guessing that you and I are possibly of the same vintage. 54 years of age, I am. Oh, and we're the same vintage. We probably went to summer school together. Yeah, I mean, and I only went that one year, and I probably should have even told the story. I had a pretty solid mark in math, but uh, there was an A required, so I had to go back to summer (laughs) school and bump it up. I'll never forget that summer. Well, there you go, right? Uh, No, long story short, uh, uh, Patty, uh, my... uh, my youngest daughter has been uh, struggling in school, specifically in math, for the last two years. And, of course, we just came through COVID, and last summer I can understand that there wouldn't be summer school. Everyone's trying to get back to get back in the swing of things. And, uh, anyways, she's struggling again this year. And as you know, when it comes to math, you need to go ahead and it's like a ladder. you got to build on one step after the other. And uh, anyways, uh, she's been struggling. We've had tutors. Uh, her mother and I are, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're well, reasonably well-educated, and, uh, you know, we try to help out where we can. But uh, it, she's, uh, she failed math last year, got pushed through, and the way things are looking right now, she's going to fail math again and get pushed through. Now, last week or the week before, uh, her mother and I met up with one of the uh, – uh, instructional resource teachers, IRTs, and uh, anyways, uh, she commented that uh, they that uh, she had uh, dropped the ball in regards to my daughter uh, not getting it, not getting the help that she needs. And so I asked, uh, "Is there any plans for summer school?" And uh, this IRT said to me, "No, there's nothing in place. Best thing you can do is get a tutor." So. Like you would, trying to be a good father, I uh, I uh, contacted the school administration, and they uh, more or less supported what the, uh, the the teacher had said. And then I called the, uh, the school board and uh, also asked. And again, I was given the same answer. Now, Patty, as you know, 
COVID was a hard time for, for many people, but especially for kids that are that have learning disabilities. And so I would like for the school board to uh, be able to come forward and uh, speak on this, either to uh, explain why there's no plans for summer school and, and or the province to come forward and uh, explain why there's no resources in place for this. Because we're letting our kids down, and it's not right. No, it isn't. You know, there's a couple of areas where there is no catching up. Reading comprehension and mathematics. Because no question, moving on to the next year, they take for granted that you've absorbed enough of the material in the curriculum to be able to advance your math skills one step further, each grade. And especially when you go from junior high to high school, it changes dramatically. If you are not prepared in mathematics, by the time you get to calculus, you will be absolutely lost. And you will not be able to catch up. Reading comprehension, there's some different tools out there where we can address it a little bit more comprehensively, but math is a very much a standalone. And that would extend to whether or not you're applying mathematics inside of uh, phys- uh, physics calculations and or chemistry. So it has a wide-reaching impact on your ability to actually be at the grade level required. It would be good for the system and great for the students if they were given that extra opportunity to make sure they're going to be where their peers are next year. Because there's nothing quite like sitting in a classroom knowing that here we go with advanced mathematics I'm supposed to understand all of the material going into say my grade 10 year and I know I don't and so I'm going to dread math and when you dread a subject you're never going to advance exactly and uh, you know I myself I'm not uh, particularly strong in mathematics but I have enough to go ahead and and use it on a daily basis to you know figure out tax and uh, you know uh, calculate different fractions and things like that Uh, you know basic understandings of math are are essential to to just you know being an adult and to uh, to work and live in society and uh, no I really feel that the the system is is letting their kids down here it's um, morally reprehensible, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I, you know, the year that I had the so-called poor mark was probably a combination of lazy and pipped off too many days. But we have to ensure the kids are ready. You know, the exactly. whole concept now of being pushed uh, ahead in a grade, which happens more often than not, is not helping anybody. You know, they talk about self-esteem or what have you. I'd rather talk my child through some self-esteem issues versus know that they're just destined to potentially fail again next year because they're simply not prepared. So let's put a little bit of responsibility back in the household. And consequently, the schools, the school board, and the department do what they're designed to do. Let me worry about self-esteem issues and self-confidence and all those things. You do what you got to do to prepare my child. That's your job. Exactly, exactly. And again, um, you know, you, you, you nailed it right on the head there, Patty. And uh, so, again, I, uh, I challenge the, uh, the, the school board and I challenge the Department of Education to come forward and explain what's going on. Happy to do exactly that. I didn't know there was a no summer school these days. I had no earthly idea. My boys have gone through the K-12 system, so I'm glad you brought it up because now it's on my list to broach with the department and the minister. Thank you very much, Patty. I greatly appreciate it because, again, it's it's it it, it makes me uh, furious and it breaks my heart at the same time. Well, hopefully, your child will get whatever help they need from the uh, the itinerant teacher and or whatever necessary prep to be actually ready for September. I appreciate the time and the subject, Steve. Thank you so much, Patty. I hope you have a great day. Same to you. Take care. Bye bye. Boy, oh boy. No summer school anymore? Anyway, let's go to line number one. Karen, you're on the air. 
Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I'm a first-time caller, so I'm very nervous. You just take your time. You're going to be fine. Okay, thank you. Okay, first of all, I got a granddaughter who's 10 years old. She turned 10 yesterday, uh, and she got nonverbal autism. Okay, my problem is uh, she's fallen through the cracks, being turned down by the doctors, denied services because they can't access her because she's nonverbal and won't accommodate her for her high special needs. So anyway, so their Friday night, uh, as she got older, she was getting uh, aggressive. So uh, when she was two and a half years old, she was diagnosed with nonverbal autism. So what happened is uh, as she got older, she was denied the service. As she got older, she was getting more aggressive. So uh, their Friday night, uh, she ended up... uh, putting her head through the wall. So they admitted her to Gander Hospital. Uh, so they, Gander Hospital was trying to get her out to Janeway, and they denied her services. Denied services because she uh, was lashing out? Was, or? Uh, no, no, because she was already assessed when she was two and a half years old uh, with this autism, uh, and there's no other doctor would go over their head. So she suffered without treatment, leading to self-harm to the point of having to be strapped down to the bed in the hospital because she's trying to communicate her needs. The only way she knows how to behave. A child 10 years old shouldn't be strapped to a bed. No, unless there's some risks for uh, you know to harm themselves or yeah, to harm well, someone else. So just I just want to be clear here. She was denied okay. what type of service or what type of treatment? Like they wouldn't uh, fix her no, up or stitch her up or what? No, 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 no. She never done nothing to her head. But anyway, they give her a CT scan. This is what we're thinking about, talking about. She had a CT scan done She that showed that she had inflammation on the side of her right brain, uh, down to her hair, uh, into her nose canal. Okay, so the doctor here in Gander went and called the Janeway out there and see can they get her sent out there. And they denied her services because she already had her assessment done. And now we're trying to get an assessment done on her, and there is no other doctor would go over the other one who assessed her. So she never had neither assessment now ever since seven, uh, well, she's seven and a half now. So ever since she was two and a half years old. And we're trying to get assessment done for her, and they didn't. And we can't get neither doctor to to look at it, even assess her. And not only that, uh, she's living in Wesleyville. That's a rural town in Newfoundland. Uh, they did not. Uh, they're trying to get workers for her, respite workers. They after having a couple there, and where she's aggressive, she grabs out to the the home care workers and hauls on their hair and you know what I mean? How can anybody go there the way she behaves? But how can they control her behavior if they're not going to diagnose her? You know, assess her. Yeah, I mean, and the issue regarding an assessment done or a diagnosis offered at two and now at the age of 10 and not wanting to overrule another doctor, I don't even know what role that plays here because things change. No, I don't know. But this is why we we are, uh, you know what I mean, reaching out to everybody who we can. We even so much as, uh, like, uh, the pediatrician here in Gander called the pediatrician out to uh, St. John's 
they told her in the Janeway, they told her that they already done assessment on her. So in other words, that's it. Forget about her. She's nonverbal. We can't give her assessment because she can't speak. But she got mental issues. This is the problem. We know she got autism. We know that, right? But uh, we're trying to get her mental state done. You know what I mean? She got a lot of history in the family who got mental illness. Her father got it. Her mother got it. So why aren't they not checking her? I don't know. I honestly God don't know. Oh, I'm, I'm puzzled. You know, I mean, this is ridiculous. Somebody got to speak out for her. And not only that, uh, like she, she lives in uh, Wesleyville. She's looking for a housing here in Grand Falls. I'm here only uh, 20 minutes away from her. I can help her. And ways within Grand Falls, uh, they could get her to school because she can't go to school where she's two because she ain't got no teacher's aid. Right, you know what her poor mother has to do nor for her to settle down? She gotta spend her little bit of money, put it in gas to drive around town till three thirty four o'clock in the morning. So she go to sleep. She runs on two hours sleep a day. And she's lucky she gets that. Her poor mother got no help with nothing or nobody. Only her mother and me when I go out because she's three hours away from me. I'm sorry to hear of your troubles. Uh, yes. th- uh, this is something yes. I'm going to put into the ears of the Autism Society. If they can yes. walk us through Please. what might be happening. And, and sorry, and I also, we contact them. They try to get help, and they can't go nowhere with it. And that's pretty bad. Yeah, uh, th- this requires me to do some follow-up because I don't know the answers, but have you talked directly with the Society? Uh, yes. They try whatever they can do, and they can't get over to apparently the main head over there. They can't get through to pediatrician out to Gander, uh, out to St. John's, because they're the ones who assist her, and they want sister again. So I called the Grand Falls pediatrician to see what we could do there. Uh, they agree with whatever the St. John said. Apparently, they don't want to go over their head. Yeah. This is the problem. Nobody won't take, won't take her on to get her assessment. It's a strange one. I am going to follow up with the society off air so they can feel free to speak to me and leave it with me. And if I get any information or can point you in the right direction to see that this isn't the case, the next time your your grandchild needs some help, I'll call you back. No, but but Patty, uh, like I said, every every minute now is crucial. That little girl been in there since Friday. Uh, After her time, she's restrained to the bed, crying out. You know? I know, but I can only do it as quickly as I can do it. I know. I know, no, no, but I want to put this out in here if anybody knows, you know what I mean, anything. Right? Yep. You know, like I said, even if I get her, in, get her into housing here, she may get help in here, but it's only going to be for a little while before she gets aggressive, you know what I mean, and didn't respite workers is gone. Karen? You know what? I'm sorry, but I, I got to say something else. Quickly. You know what I don't understand is uh, if she put her in the child uh, services, more or less, uh, they were. They are willing to help her. Now, does that make sense to you? Because it don't make sense to me. Yeah, you shouldn't have to relinquish control and care of your no. child to get the help they need. Listen, no. leave it with me, Karen. Let me see what I can do. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Deatra Walsh, our good friend from MNL. She's the Director of Advocacy and Communication with that organization. What we're talking about, wastewater. What's coming down the pipe? Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good to the Director of Advocacy and Communication with Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Deatra Walsh. Good morning, Deatra. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about you? 
I'm okay, thank you. So there have been some changes, and I guess I'll give you guys some kudos. The work that you've done on this file, apparently there are some revisions coming to the wastewater systems effluent regulations, the WSER. What's going on? So this has been a, and thank you for that, and thanks for having me on this morning. This has been a long piece of work, I have to say. Um, there's a history behind this, and for anybody who's wondering, um, the, the WSER, as we call them, the regulations, they are under the Fisheries Act, and the aim of these regulations is to reduce impacts of pollution from wastewater by setting national minimum effluent quality standards, and I'm reading off the Canada Gazette publication right now, actually. These came into effect in 2012, and even before they came into effect, as a result of a lot of consultations, MNL and our members knew we would be very. It would be very difficult to reach what these regulations were asking us to do. Um, as you can imagine, and as everyone knows, so much of our wastewater and our systems, as they call them here, are actually pipes that go out into the ocean. And for many municipalities, there are multiple pipes, sometimes in the realm of, of 30. You know, So these regulations uh, apply to if you had these systems, these pipes going out with untreated um, sewage, um, in excess of 100 cubic meters um, per day, um, that they would be subject to these regulations. They came into force in 2012. If you had these sort of ones that were in excess, you had to apply for what's called a transitional authorization um, by 2014, and that would basically give you a, a little bit of time um, before you'd have to put a system, a treatment system in place. Um, unfortunately, um, most of our members, most municipalities um, did not meet the deadline for applying for transitional authorization, and they, in effect, became uncompliant with those regulations. So we have a system of, of uh, not in compliance, which is problematic, you know. So, you know, fast forward, and I know this is a long story for everyone, but fast forward to a couple of years ago, we had a emergency meeting with our members to say, what can we do about this? And one of the key things we identified is that we needed to reopen that window for applying for those transitional authorizations so our members would not be in a situation of non-compliance. And if we could get more time to do that um, and also address some of the other issues in those regs, um, we could really start to plan forward to try to figure out what the system solutions would be. So MNL did a huge amount of advocacy alongside of uh, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, because again, it's mostly our members, 84% of them uh, were impacted by this situation. Um, and, uh, and so we did manage to get those regulations reopened through a lot of advocacy and work with our members and through our members. And what we see here now and what you're talking about is the last phase of the regulatory process um, for bringing those, not necessarily into force yet, um, but there are draft regulations now posted in the Canada Gazette for 60 days of consultation. So this is the last a step in this process that has, like I said, been ongoing for almost, you know, uh, in the past five years or since I've been with MNL, but certainly since 2012. Thank you for letting me go on about that, Patty. No problem. Look, I mean, the feds have indeed slowed their roll a little bit. I remember the one case from the town of Dover where the town clerk was threatened 
with criminal charges. I mean, so it got pretty wild there for a little while. I mean, even some, like, we've got to kind of dealt with in this neck of the woods with the Riverhead Water Treatment Facility. But even in this, like, for instance, the city of Cornerbrook, they've got a fund set aside where they take a percentage of property taxes and fees that are paid to the city to deal with their wastewater issue. And they're nowhere near being able to cover the costs, which are going to be extraordinary. Most small municipalities, they simply don't have the capacity to deal with this. Now, nobody thinks it's a good idea to pump raw, untreated sewage into the into the ocean, but we've got to be realistic about timelines and costs associated with getting up to compliance. Absolutely. And to your point, I mean, again, even if you were setting funding aside for this, from the, the way that the law was situated under the Fisheries Act, even someone like Cornerbrook was still in a state of noncompliance yep. or anyone else who didn't apply for that transitional authorization and missed that window. It was that window that was the problem. So by reopening this, it enables people to at least be in a state where enforcement is not saying to you, you're in a state of noncompliance and it's because you don't have a TA. Well, I can't get one anymore. So the first step was to allow that to be possible. And you are absolutely right. The cost of this infrastructure to deal with these systems and pipes um, across our province is exorbitant. It is, you know, it is beyond the capacity of what our members are able, even able to generate through property taxes. Because we're just talking about one set of infrastructure, not everything else that's needed at a municipal level, right? Absolutely. Deatra, do you have time for me to put you on hold, take the newscast, come back and finish this? Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's do exactly that. So Deatra Walsh on hold. We'll pick up that part of me, that conversation after the newscast. And time to speak with you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin our conversation on line number five with the Director of Advocacy and Communication with MNL. That's Deatra Walsh. Deatra, you're back on the air. Hi. Yes. So I'm not entirely sure where we left off. I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. No, we were talking about, uh, we, we left off talking about sort of the infrastructure costs and sort of what this would mean. And that's where you were, you were going to next with that. Yeah, so, you know, every community will have a different need, whether it be to upgrade their uh, potable water system or their wastewater treatment. But give us some ballpark numbers so people can put some context to this, if you have well, something. I mean, yeah, no, and, and that's a good question. You know, a couple of years ago, um, Tom Cooper did a great piece of work for MNL on the infrastructure deficit, which was water and wastewater. And it was somewhere in the, in the realm of, uh, oh, I think 600 million, uh, definitely in the hundreds of millions. Uh, we're talking about, you know, you know, even beyond that now, if we're looking at, and that includes drinking water, just, uh, just to let your listeners know. So if we're looking at just the wastewater and, and, you know, the cost of infrastructure these days, and we hear about it and we hear about it on your show as well, you know, everything has increased. So, you know, this, is, this has a hefty price tag to address what's needed across the province. And municipalities can't do this alone. It has to be a, a whole of all the orders of government looking at this and thinking, how do, we, how do we address this? Federation of Canadian Municipalities has been doing a lot of advocacy on specific um, or for specific federal funding on water and wastewater streams, certainly through the existing programs. Um, there are, you know, opportunities um, to avail of funding to support uh, these kinds of infrastructure. But again, this, this is such a huge cost that it would need some additional funding set aside because nobody is able to generate this from property taxes or anything. It is impossible. And like 
like I mentioned earlier, this is a difficult task with our topography, the landscape. You're talking, like I said, 30 systems. We need innovative, right-sized solutions. We need to think really creatively about the engineering possibilities for small system treatment in some of our smaller communities and collectively wrap our heads around that so that we're not scared of what this means uh you know people want to do good things as you mentioned earlier we, we don't want to be putting sewage out in the ocean but how do we do it in a way that is least disruptive the most innovative it will cost money obviously but with the, the right kind of outcomes so that both our administrators can support this our councils can support this and you know we're trying to reach uh reach toward that compliance even more you know absolutely and uh, just a quick one before i let you go uh, we had a call about property assessments this morning, and since that, I guarantee you I have 50 emails with screen grabs of people to show me just how much their property assessment went up year over year. What's MNL's thoughts on this, and can you give us any insight as to why this is happening the way it is? Because people say, look, my assessment went up $30,000, I've done nothing with the house, there's nothing selling in my neighborhood, and all of a sudden I'm told, well, it's happening everywhere, which is a bit of a vague shrug your shoulders, I don't have an answer for you kind right. of reply. Yeah, and I, I mean, I to, to be quite honest, and in, in fairness to the municipal assessment agency and Don Hearn, there, I, I'm not in a position to speak to the exact mechanisms that would uh, create, you know, the property assessments going up. I would probably say it, it'd be great to speak with him and get him on. He's out with the professional municipal administrators this week at their annual conference. Um, but it's an important point, and people are looking at their property assessments and then looking at how that relates to their mill rates and all these sorts of things. So yeah, people have questions. I don't necessarily have all those answers now, and I would welcome you know like i said uh, speaking to the assessment agency so you can dig into the analytics around that for sure yeah we've reached out to the uh, that group and hopefully they'll be able to provide a guess because yeah. there are important questions this is a big financial uh, impact on folks so we need to understand exactly why it's happening the way it is always appreciate the time and enjoy the chat diatra absolutely thanks patty i appreciate your time as well my pleasure take good care Bye now. Bye-bye. Deatra Wallace, Director of Advocacy and Communication with MNL. It's bee swarm season. Oh, boy. Joining us on line number two is the president of the NLB Keeping Association. That's Donna House. Good morning, Donna. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? That's bad. Thanks. How are you doing? Great. Great. Thanks. I wanted to take a few minutes of time to speak with your uh, listeners this morning to get some important information out about honeybee swarm season. That term swarm sounds pretty intimidating, but it's not really. Um, as you and many of the listeners know, honeybees don't survive very well on their own here in our climate in this part of the world. And they're managed uh, mostly throughout the world by beekeepers who keep the bees in wooden boxes called hives. This time of the year, the bees are building up their numbers so that they have as many bees as possible for when the flowers bloom so they can get out and bring back nectar and pollen to the hive to feed their colony and prepare for the summer and the following season. So this time of the year when the hive colony gets so big and congested, if the beekeeper doesn't have the opportunity or time because of cold, bad weather, or what have you, um, they may not be able to prevent the bees from swarming. So swarming is a natural reproductive process. What they do is, um, if, they do, if the queen doesn't have room in the hive to lay more eggs, they'll prepare for the queen and about 50 or 60% 
of the colony to leave the hive and try to find somewhere else to live, and that will leave room in the hive for the rest of the bees to raise a new queen and start over again, and they have lots of room in there. So when the colony swarms, the queen and oh, probably 30,000, 40,000 bees will leave the hive. First, before they leave, they eat a lot of honey. So they're very, very heavy and full of honey. They will fly out of the hive en masse, and they will go somewhere nearby, and they'll cluster on something, usually a tree. And when they finish flying, they'll surround the queen on that branch on the tree and keep her warm, keep her safe. And then some scout bees will go flying around looking for a place to get in. It could be the corner of a house or a building. They'll come back and let the cluster or the swarm know we've found a place. Now we'll go and get in there. So these honeybee swarms are very, very gentle when they're clustered like that. And when they're flying, they almost literally can't sting. But uh, to be safe, if a person sees a bee swarm, they should contact the Newfoundland and Labrador Beekeeping Association for help with that. We don't want to lose honeybees. We have very important honeybees here in the province. They're disease-free. And beekeepers would like the opportunity, if a swarm gets away, for them to come and collect it for you rather than having it exterminated. So a lot of people would probably call an exterminator to come and get rid of those bees out of fear, naturally. So we have developed a swarm list, and it's on our website, nlbeekeeping.com. It's very close to the front page. There's a whole list of beekeepers and their direct phone numbers that a person can call, and it's broken down by region. Uh, they can phone those phone numbers, and a beekeeper will come pretty quickly to remove that swarm for them and put it in a hive and uh, take it to their their yard, their apiary. Well, the natural inclination would be to have them exterminated, as you rightfully point out, because people, oh, I can't say everybody, some people just have a built-in fear of bees, whether it be stung or otherwise, even though so uber important. Just look at countries or jurisdictions where they have pro problems with their bee population. It is huge and the implications are massive. So this might be a silly question. I'm going to ask it anyway. So I call you and I say I've got a bee swarm on a maple tree in my backyard. Can you come deal with it? How do you actually collect bees? How do you encourage them to go where you want them to go? <laughs> they will follow their queen and their queen is in that cluster. They're keeping her safe and warm inside. So we will come, hopefully it's not too high up in the tree and we'd have to go up a ladder. Um, but we will, if it's close enough and we can reach it, whether by ladder or by ground, we, if it's a nice soft branch, we would put a container underneath that big cluster, which is about the size of, say, uh, a volleyball, and just give that branch a shake and that big cluster of bees will fall down into the container or hive box below it or bag, whatever, and the queen most likely will be in there. There will be some bees flying around, but they will go to that cluster where their queen is. We I might have to clip a branch and then shake it into a container. But, but if the queen is there, the rest of the bees will follow in within a short period of time. Yeah, you won't see the bees swarm in the wet, cold weather necessarily. I think the swarm season only lasts about a month, right? Well, it can happen any time through the summer and early fall if, if the colonies are 
uh, are too large. It's less so later on in the summer, but it depends too on the weather and the size of the colony. See, this time is when it's most likely to happen. And already I'm aware of some situations. So we've had really bad weather for a few weeks. It's been too cold for beekeepers to open their hives and check on them or to split their colonies, make new beehives from their main colony so that there's room in the mother colony for the queen to lay and they don't want to swarm or leave. And uh, then a nice day like yesterday happens, boom, the weather is warm. And, well, on the West Coast it was. (laughs) And immediately you could have swarms because they're just waiting for the right temperature to be able to go. So with the warm weather coming soon, I hope we we may see a little more of that. Hopefully we won't see too many swarms because beekeepers do try to prevent that from happening. But sometimes one will get away from us. So give us the details one more time where I can find a list of beekeepers nearby where I live. It's our website, the Newfoundland and Labrador Beekeeping website. It's nlbeekeeping.com. Good to have you on the show and appreciate the information, Donna. Thanks very much, Patty. Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Yeah, one thing we have to do is protect the honeybees. That's for sure. And all the bees. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Doc, you're on the air. And there's the delay. And there's Doc. Ah, how are you, Patty? Not bad. You're a veteran. Turn down the radio. Bye. Yeah, okay. Sometimes I like listening to myself. I get it. <laughs> Everybody gets that, Doc. I know. Uh, a few little items, Fatty. I've been away for a while, but I, I wanted to talk to you about t- uh, three items, really. One is hockey. I was delighted to hear about the, the new arena down the east end. Uh, you know, I look at the facilities we have here in the city, and I mean, they're archaic, and you know that, and I know that, the hockey facilities, the ice rinks. And uh, I just got back from a tournament my nine-year-old grandson had. In your day, in my day, it might be out in manuals. This one was down in Tampa. Yep. And the, that particular facility that the tournament, uh, the kids played in, they're nine years old, all of them, uh, had four rinks, four ice surfaces. Three were for hockey, and one was for figure skating. And it was just an amazing facility, and I'm sure there's, I know Tampa's a big city, and you know that, and I'm sure there's more than one there, but we're still a long, long ways away from that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a big demand for ice around here. What yep. I think is also unique about this, and I think is, is a good feature, is that you don't need a full NHL size ring to accommodate the 9 to 11-year-olds. They really right. will fit quite nicely in this facility, so I think that's going to be a good selling point for them. The rinks around here are obviously very, very old. I'm intimately involved with one, and it's a real handful to make sure that it's, you know, up to snuff yep. and up to standard. So I, I welcome it, you know, even though it might jeopardize our revenue, a little bit. I think there's a space for meeting that demand with this new uh, facility. I wish you good luck. Yeah, I do too, and uh, I hope we have more in particular here in the West End. And I know, I think you went to St. Barnes. I know I did, and I skated on the form surface before it had artificial ice. So, that you know, the form is near 100 years old. Yep. (laughs) Anyhow, number two. I was really taken aback yesterday when I read that the uh, NLESD, Newfoundland Labrador English School District, and the province paid 
$750,000 to fight the Churchill family uh, in the case of uh, discrimination against a little boy, Carter Churchill. Just imagine, $750,000 to fight that family. And I wondered, well, who signed off on that? Was it the head of the school board or the head of the school district? Yeah, apparently so. Uh, the the number is egregious. It was $66,000 than initially reported, $66,000 more than initially reported, to defend the indefensible. That's my biggest problem with this. You yeah. know, it did make its way to court, and that would be some of the justification offered by the government. Is, well, they were taking us to court, or we had to go through the Human Rights Commission. It should have never got to that point. That's no. the point. Common sense. I mean, and the figure uh, I saw yesterday in the media, the, the fine, well, so far, the, the last figure was close on the 750000 So did the minister know about it? Did the elected school board know about it? Did they all agree to it? I mean, we can't find out how this went through the system, but boy, oh boy, oh boy. That is a tragedy, not only for that family, but it's a tragedy for people who are attending schools throughout Newfoundland and Labrador, and in some cases have very, very poor facilities, and we can spend 750 grand on fighting a little boy. It's not good. The only positive that I'll say positive we can take away from this is hopefully what it does is set a precedent. That any so. uh, That yeah. any child, exceptionalities, whatever the case may be, gets the support they need, because we can't just say education is inclusive and has to be inclusive, not just we're all in the same building. That's not what inclusivity means. Yeah, uh, no. Before we run out of time, Doc, I know you want to get a quick touchdown on one more before I take one more, one last call. Yeah, okay. Very quickly, uh, people should be aware if they heat their homes with furnace oil, uh, the 1st of July is going to cost you 14 cents more a litre. I want to thank the Premier for tackling Minister O'Regan on the issue over the last few days. Uh, we now know where the province stands. And uh, again, Seamus O'Regan and Goody Hutchings and the other three, four uh, three MPs, uh, Ken McDonald didn't vote for it. Uh, they should be ashamed of themselves. So this is going to be a burden on people and uh, it was unnecessary. There's no proof at all that uh, that kind of uh, action does anything to reduce emissions, but it does a lot to hurt people. Yeah, it'll be 14 cents in total. And on gasoline, yep. where we already have a carbon tax, it moves from 11 to 14 with yep. the carbon so tax. Appreciate the time, Doc. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, final word this morning goes to line number one. Brent, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Excellent, thanks. How you doing? Oh, number one, sir, number one. Give me a second now just to get over to Rumble Strip. <laughs> provided by our provincial government, eh? Okay. What's on your mind? I was, I was just calling to give a shout-out. Well, the town of Clarenbow got shook there the last few days with the passing of a local legend, uh, Kevin King. I'm not sure if you know or aware of who he is or that he passed. I do. I know I crossed paths with him one time uh, fly fishing. Oh, okay. as a matter of fact. Yeah, well, on, on his obituary there, yeah, you could see that he really enjoyed that. I just wanted to make a shout out to all of his family and friends and workers. He was my first employer. And I mean, he, he built Clarenbow. He, he's a big loss to the area, big loss to the province. If the man was stressed out with all he done, he, he never showed it on his face. And I was driving this morning. I said he was like the Elon Musk of Clarenville area. He had enormous success and uh, no question in the Clarenville region. Um, 
just quick question. I don't know the answer to this. Is Kevin King originally from like Random Island? Random Island, I believe. Yeah, as far as I know, and uh, and I, well, I lived there on King's Crescent, right? I mean, the, the street that his father built, and and you look there across from Walmart. I mean, what he's after doing for the area is unreal. Down Random Island, he, he has a big house. I can only imagine that the people and and the lives he's changed. Like I said, he was my first employer to get a pay stub from. I'm tired, um, and without even without even realizing it at the time, you're just meeting his employees, and and like it's just unreal the uh, the impact and what what one man can do. You know what I mean? I, I don't know how or what team of people need to fill those shoes now, but he's like I, I'm in I'm into being self-employed and real estate and that, and he was always a man that I. When I would see him, he would smile, you'd chat, and he was always a guy and a guy that I admired, you know, and would strive. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect to accomplish the things he accomplished. But uh, it's a definitely shook the area at a sudden passing. I just wanted to make a shout out to, to all all the guys working up to the hardware stores and working at Coastal or anybody rent living out of them or knew them or just said hello to them, right? I mean, definitely a life worth mentioning, in my opinion. Well, he was one of those guys that, you know, people say, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy guy. He was one of those guys. I know a little bit about him and his track record. Uh, pretty big family. And I think he wasn't very old, maybe 65, 66, something like that. 67. Is that I right? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's sad. I, mean, I know you wanted to talk about municipal assessments, but we just cleared 11.59 in 20 seconds. You want to do that another day? Uh, we can, yeah. I was just going to say, like, they could do something like a tear system. Like, while everything the government does, in my opinion, is a bit of a boondoggle, in the words of Buddy, who took over Muskrat Falls up there. But, I mean, there's no need the way that things goes with municipal assessment. And it's, it's, it's all backwards. I think if they just had it one, two, three, here it is. You're, you're one, two, or three, and you're paying the same. It'd save a bunch of money at the end of the at down the end of the line, you know what I mean? And you wouldn't need somebody going around driving check and see if you get a permit do your siding. Geez, maybe somebody don't need to come drive around and look to see if you did it. Why would you go buy the permit if you weren't gonna do it type thing, you know what yeah, I mean? The issue there is not everybody gets a permit for stuff they're supposed to get a permit for. Uh Brent, you've had the last word. I appreciate the time. Have a good day, Patty. Yeah. Have a good day. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. Would have liked more of a chat, but we're out of time. But we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.